This podcast is a production of Mutant Donkey. Uh, if you like Mutant Donkey, please consider supporting us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash mutant donkey. You can also follow us on Twitter at mutant underscore donkey. We also have a presence on YouTube at the Mutant Donkey channel, so please like and subscribe if you like this. Thank you. So right now we have Eat from California and uh, we have Itancita from Texas. Oh yeah. Candyman from California and then myself from somewhere else. Uh, Andrew's sick. Mopi may jump in or may not. She's been tired. She's had a tough weekend because she had like a a prom, not a prom, a formal last night, and then she's had she has a dancing competition this weekend. And so, you know the heavy, heavy drinking. Yeah, yeah, well, that's mine. My heavy drinking. They gotta put up with my heavy drinking. So, but I just I'm I'm a happy drinker. So you know it's all good. Uh, but no, she's got a dancing competition tonight, also. So even if she jumps in with us, she will have to like leave and and a little bit anyway. So <clears throat> that sounds good. But anyway, I thought we would dedicate this podcast to Call of the Cthulhu since I bought the Call of the Cthulhu uh, role-playing book from Ben back at the Alcon, and I've been reading it a lot. And I also had bought the Necronomicon, which is the combined tales of H.P. Lovecraft. I bought it in 2009 when I met Candyman uh, down in San Diego for the for that comic. Oh yeah, that was that might have been just no. It went one more time. It's really hard to get into Comic Con now. Yeah, really after hard. that it was close to impossible unless you were in the industry to. I've, I've tried several times and I haven't. They they do like a thing where they do like a waiting room and you have to base. It's like a lottery basically, and it's uh, it's it's just yeah, it's very very difficult to get tickets now. I haven't been since the year after that. It's been a long time. Okay, yeah, but anyway, that was the when I bought the Necronomicon. His combined tales. It's got almost every short story he wrote in one one book. It's a pretty heavy book. So wow. I've been I've been reading that book and um, little by little I've been reading some of sh- short stories, and I was just talking about how he's I was talking to Ben in the interview about how immersive his storytelling method is, from the point of view that he he writes like the stories actually happened, like there's there's no transition between I'm still in a story no this is a person in a courtroom explaining what happened to him, and he's talking like it really happened and and you know it's all procedural and stuff like that and he's telling them how he went down into this tunnel. And he was—he had a friend with him, and they saw something, and then they ran off, and and so it, it kind of dra- drags you into his story. You sink into his story before you know it. You're not reading a story; you're reading an accounting of something that probably really happened. I'm not saying it really happened; it's fantasy, obviously. But you know, uh, right? That's the effect that you get from the story. So, eat you being a writer, I don't know if you have any. Well, uh, the thing that I actually kind of like about <laughs> uh, some of those old pulp uh, magazine type writers from that mm-hmm. time period is. It's all really soft, you know. It's it's approachable. It's fun. It's it doesn't take itself too seriously, but they do a great job with the language. Um, There are classes you could give on uh, Lovecraft and Mm -hmm. guys like uh, Robert E. Howard. Um, They just they loved the language. They really kind of you know they really chewed it up whenever they were doing it. The thing that I appreciated about Lovecraft, I mean, just that 
the fact that he was really willing to go there, that it was a complete commitment to something that would be really bizarre and kind of off-putting to the time. Yeah. And he was a bizarre and off-putting little guy. <laughs> and uh, he just he just owned it. It was really a lot of... It's kind of fun to, to go back and check out his stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ethan Tito just bought... Last weekend, we went to the MacCon uh, up in uh, New Caney, Texas, which is about 45 minutes from where we live here in Houston. And uh, we met some people. What did we do? Oh, yeah, I, uh, I bought him some uh, books for the Conan the Barbarian role-playing game. And you were mentioning Robert E. Howard, right? Yes. And so yeah. they, they were pen pals with H.P. Lovecraft. So it's incredible to see how Pulp Fiction, a lot of what we like, Everything has kind of like a Lovecraftian finger in it, even if it's not readily apparent. There's like six degrees or maybe less than six degrees of separation between Lovecraft and anything that we love in terms of gaming. Yeah. I mean, there was a whole Lovecraftian set of monsters in D&D, wasn't there? I mean, there's like yes. the, the Mind Flayers, for example. Absolutely. So those guys um, have tentacles and, and they, they make you insane because they start draining your sanity, right? Is that one of the, like their psionic attacks or something like that? Yes. Um, all I knew is that as soon as the, the mind flares were in play, it was really just better to cut and run. I don't think we were ever f capable of fully taking one of those guys down. And that's that's pretty much what it is, I guess, in the Cthulhu role-playing game. Like Ben Burns was describing to me that you either get all the clues and then you have a chance of uh, defeating the monster or you just try to go at the monster and lose. Because no matter what yes. kind of weapons you have, you're not going to win if you don't have the clues of how to defeat these things. Well, um, and that was sort of the, the thing that made Lovecraft's style so special, is that he kept trying to write from that border between sanity and insanity. And the idea that the, the cosmic horror could just... Just knowing your place in the universe and how small and insignificant you were would simply break your mind. Um, yeah. And it's... It's been interesting. Um, if you look at all the media that it's been kind of put into, um, I I don't think that there's ever been the definitive, really powerful work of you know. There's not like that one movie that's like, oh, this is exactly what you feel like whenever you see Lovecraft, mm -hmm. or the video game that summarizes it perfectly. There was uh, um, trying to remember the name of it, but there was a first-person shooter for Call of the uh, Call of Cthulhu. Okay. And one of the one of the wrinkles in it was that if you kept seeing weird stuff, if you kept being exposed to all of these nightmares, you'd lose your sanity. And so for a brief time, you'd lose control of your character, and you would either like just start blasting up a room <laughs> or run away, or if you really got bad, he would just turn the gun on himself. So you're sitting there playing and playing and playing, and you're like just about at a save point, and then your guy just like nope, bang, and you were you know back at your last save. Yeah, that's a funny, that's an interesting mechanic because it's also in the Darkest Dungeon uh, game. And I don't know if you've played it. I know you saw me playing it remotely one time. I've seen uh, you play it. I've never played it myself. But there is that mechanic, like the, the evil wizards or, or dark cultists make you confused. And so you start like shooting at your own people and like randomly just doing stuff. And uh, that happens every once in a while. So it's kind of frustrating because you start losing control of your own people. But it is right. kind of like in that sense of Lovecraft. Also, your people start losing sanity, and at the end of adventures, you have to put them in the asylum, or you have to take them to the tavern so that they can relax for a little bit and regain their sanity before you put them in a quest again. Thankfully, you have a roster of like 20 people that you can mix and match uh, while you let some people rest. But yeah, it's, it's pretty... I just, I want to be in that tavern. I want to be in a tavern <laughs> where people are literally drinking to become more sane. Yep, yep. 
So what are, what are you in here for? Well, <laughs> hard week at work. Uh, it's five o'clock on a Friday, and as it turns out, I've seen some seen some horrible things this week. Yeah, I mean, some people's work. Beer. Yeah, the monotony of some people's work almost makes them insane. Like you're saying to the point that that's why people get together during a happy hour to kind of get a sense of what it's like to be normal again or like have control of something. Maybe I don't know. Even though <laughs> drinking to, is to the care less. Yeah, even though drinking is the, is the opposite of taking control of things, it's more like losing control. Yes. But, but maybe losing control and not caring is the ultimate effect of alcohol, I don't know. Um, well, maybe. I, I sure hope so. <laughs> maybe for some people, I don't know. That's been my, that's been the, the premise I've been working under for a while now, so. <laughs> but the, one, one of the key things that I want to touch about Lovecraft is, it's part of the influence of his work was the fact that he had a lot of nightmares. A lot of like vivid nightmares so I wanted to touch with with all three of you and see if you guys have any personal experience yourselves with any kind of very vivid nightmares that you had through your lives and how that has affected your your psyche in general well um, so first of all I I used to have a really vivid dream life mm-hmm. um, now that I'm a parent I just as soon as I get in bed it's just all over I don't remember anything until the next morning yeah um, but I used to have these really vivid dreams, uh, a lot of them in high school. I'd actually uh, come in and tell everybody, but the most vivid one that I had recently that really kind of shook me up is I had had uh, knee surgery mm-hmm. right before my son was born. And so they put me on Vicodin because, of course, knee surgery is painful. Yeah. But I don't really like Vicodin because it gives me bad dreams. Oh. And so... The first night that I, or the second night that I'd taken the Vicodin, I also had a high fever. Mm-hmm. So it was a mix between this opioid and a high fever, and I had just the worst dream I've ever had in my entire life. Sounds and like a bad trip. I, it was. Um, I just remember I was sitting in a room, and I heard my daughter crying at the time that this dream took place. She was just a little under three. And I walked over to the to her bed, and she was like regressing back down through all of her stages. Oh, so she was wow. going from a toddler to a you know, baby to infant to you know, and it just kept she kept getting smaller and smaller. And just before she sort of, uh, you know, as as Bradbury would have put it, gone back to the seed death. Um, I just heard her say, "Bye bye, daddy," and then gone. And from that point, I'm like, you know what? woke up and I'm like, I'm going to let this knee hurt as much as it wants to. I've yeah. never taken this stuff again because I don't need that. Wow. That, that, that kind of reminded me to, what was that Netflix series? The Haunted Hills or something? Ethan, you remember? Uh, Ethan Cito. Could, uh, couldn't tell you. Watch it. Oh. I think it was The House on Haunted Hill. Or The Haunting of House on the Hill, maybe? But anyway, there was this this sequence where the was it the mom or somebody saw her daughter and after she was dead and her her jaw was taped shut because he was a corpse, and she gets up and she tries to speak and it's like the most horrifying scene I've probably ever seen of any kind of horror, uh, where where the the daughter knows she, that she's dead and and she's in the corpse and she can't talk, you know because there's plenty of dreams that I've had where I try to talk and nothing comes out right and so you're like trying to to say something and it's, it's see just, I've had those dreams where you can't talk too but they're never nightmares oh they're not yeah I've had so it's just really pleasant you're just sitting there and I'm just not hearing anything yeah no, <laughs> no. 
not so for me. And then all my teeth fall out. <laughs> then, yeah, that that's some weird thing that yeah, my teeth fall out in some of my dreams. I don't know why. That's a weird, weird thing. But also that that dream in that movie Poltergeist, where no, it's not a dream sequence. It's a it's a sequence where the mother is trying to get to the kid's room, and and the corridor keeps getting longer and she can't get there. Yes. And I think that that's very much pattern after the dreams that people have, and you know, very well. Frustrating. And the fact is, <laughs> is that Lovecraft, being so xenophobic, would have had you know everything would have terrified him. So where our dreams have kind of a specific focus on what's really terrifying for him, it would just be everything outside of my door. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, Candyman, do you have anything to add? Do you have any dreams and stuff like that? Yeah, no, I like. I think I think it's maybe a, it's more of a a youth thing. I mean, I definitely. I definitely used to have a lot more dreams when I was younger, like more vivid dreams that I could recall better. Mm-hmm. But when I was young, I used to have, I, I now think that they were night terrors at the time. I just thought they were nightmares. But it, it was really like a recurring theme that I would like have these dreams that something was pulling me out of bed. Like something was like, you know, had a hold of like my leg or my arm and was like pulling yeah. me out of bed to the floor. And then I'd, I'd, wake up and I'd be falling out of bed oh wow That's uh, and it freaky. was oh it was terror I, I, I mean like I have, I have a friend that has a, a, a daughter who has night terrors mm-hmm. and uh, from what I understand I think now that they were probably night terrors because mm-hmm. um, I used to just wake up and just basically like in fact the worst part was I'd, I'd have these horrible dreams I'd wake up and I would try to scream and like I couldn't make a sound like I was just like too terrified to scream yeah, yeah it was the it was the worst, but uh, now I just like I, I just had a dream the other day that was kind of interesting. It was related to something. I think we were playing Monster Hunter. I think it was something mm-hmm. about something. It was something we had talked about, and I kind of woke up. I was like, "Oh, that's interesting." I had a dream about like th- that thing, but I've that was like two days ago. And like I said, as you get older, you know, unless you write it down, they just they're they're gone. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. They're gone, and and I swear I have some dreams where I where I think that I have seen the future, but then I can't remember, and I know something's gonna happen, and there's a trigger, and I know that I've, part of my brain thinks that I have seen the future, and so I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, and it goes away like it's fleeting and bye bye. My yeah. uh, my wife had something similar to that, uh, and I'm still watching for it because I want to see this come to fruition. Yeah. Um, there was a TV show that uh, Fox started running. I don't even know if it's still on because it wasn't especially good. Uh, called the Cool Kids, mm-hmm. and it was so, sort of supposed to be this updated version of the Golden Girls or whatever. Um, and we watched a couple of episodes because it's one of the producers. I think is Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. So uh-huh. you know, it's worth a watch. Okay. Um, and it really wasn't worth a watch. No, it's too <laughs> bad. But my. <laughs> My wife woke up after we had watched like the second episode, and she's like, "I had the I had the weirdest dream last night that, like, in my dream, I wrote a whole episode of that show that was really funny, and it's like they're on a boat, and I'm like, I know for a fact that show, if it lasts any amount of time, they're going to have a old people on a boat episode because <laughs> you know old people and cruises go together like strawberry and cheesecake, yeah, um, which they also serve on those cruises, but, um, I think it's going to happen." Because I'm relatively sure that my wife is a TV psychic. Okay. <laughs> I'm hoping so at any rate. <laughs> That's cool. Then and then Ethan Cito, you have. Do you remember any of the times you sleepwalked when you were younger? Oh yeah, I had a few of 
those instances. And also had a couple times where I woke up and it it was like I was still dreaming, even mm-hmm. though I was awake. Yeah. So I would like see hallucinations of people in front of me, mm-hmm. but then I would look away and then look back and they'd be gone. Huh. And so that's like a state between dreaming and being awake? I guess. Uh, one time uh, I was back at the old house. Mm-hmm. I woke up and there were like three angels in my bed and they were like playing cards. Oh. Yeah. It was kind of weird. <laughs> what, what game was it though? <laughs> I don't remember. I think it was just like poker or something, maybe go fish. Huh. And then I looked away and looked back and they were gone. This other time, it was my first grade teacher was like standing on the floor in my room because I had like a bunk bed so I was up close to the ceiling and then uh, I remember it was like a a weekend so I woke up a bit later than usual and she like pointed out the door and I got up and I ran out the door wait but you were dreaming or you were awake or what no I was awake she I woke up and she was like go Ethan and she pointed towards the door so then I got up and went so basically you perceived as if there was somebody actually there when you woke up, or or were you awake the whole time? Uh, no, it was like right after I woke up, then I saw my first grade teacher standing in my room. Whoa. Yeah. That's... Well, and it's interesting whenever stuff like, I don't know if I ever told you this, but uh, when I was in college, um, uh, when I was roommate with roommates with uh, Mark the Narc, mm-hmm. I was, uh, I had this dream, it's like, about two or three in the morning I had this dream that the two of us were on this giant pile of garbage and we were looking for something uh-huh. I don't know what we were looking for but we were rooting around in there and I woke up and I, I remember that I was awake because I had to go in I went to the bathroom um, and I remember thinking wow that's a really strange dream and as I was walking back in to go to bed Mark who talked in his sleep regularly uh-huh. rolled over and goes hey I found it it's over here and then he just rolled over and went back to sleep. And I was like, wait, what? Wait, you guys <laughs> were having a synchronized morning. dream? Right. So the next morning, I'm like, Mark, did you have a dream last night where you were looking for something? And he had no recollection of what I was talking about because, of course, it sounds insane. And every time I tell somebody that story, they're like, oh, you were just dreaming. But, yeah, but I wasn't dreaming, and he might have been invading my dreams. But, <laughs> but you know, that's that's a whole premise between the Call of the Cthulhu short story. And in the interview that's mm-hmm. following, Ben Burns and I will talk a little bit about that. But the, in Call of the Cthulhu, people, when Cthulhu surfaces from where I left from the island, he starts inducing dreams in people, and they're kind of synchronized nightmares. And so people in different continents and different places will be sharing the same types of dreams. Like, And they, they, he did refer to them, I think, more like night terrors, where they'd be screaming, and, you know, when they wake up, they're all shaken, and, you know, they just don't want to go back to sleep because they're afraid to, to get back into that world. So what you said to me is actually extremely interesting because you're saying that that kind of thing, whether it comes from Lovecraft or not or whatever, it's not impossible. Well, uh, and the fact that if it is, you know, an entity like Cthulhu, he's really into recycling and making sure that we use all of our resources because <laughs> uh, we were going to find that, whatever it was. <laughs> you're going to find it, but you woke up before you found it, I guess. Well, I did, but Mark didn't. Mark oh. kept his eye on the prize. I'm, I'm so. sure he found it and he didn't want to say anything. Nah, that was probably <laughs> what it was. Now he's got some special night thing that I don't, and and I'll never know. Yep. 
pretty much. Oh. In my I in my history, I've have when I was younger, I did have a lot of I don't know if they were borderline night terrors or dreams like vivid dreams. I used to also sleepwalk, which is probably where Ethan gets it from. Ethan Cito. Um, and this one time, I was staying at my cousin's house down in a different town, and um, I woke up because there was something funny with my back. It was like itching. And when I opened my eyes, I saw the full moon. And then I closed my eyes again. I'm like, well, that's funny. There's a full moon. And then I'm like thinking, well, I shouldn't be able to see the moon because I'm sleeping inside. And so I opened my eyes again. And sure enough, there's a moon. There's a night sky. There's the stars. And I am outside in a common patio that's shared between a, a set of houses. And I had slept walk all the way outside of the house with my blankets, with my pillow. And I had plopped down apparently in the middle of the grass, and there I was, uh, sleeping, looking Whoa. up into the sky. That's not the weird thing. <laughs> the weird <laughs> thing is, I went back into the house with all my covers, and I can. This is the one way I can certify that it wasn't the whole thing wasn't a dream, because I hit my foot on the step going into the house, and and the next day my foot was sore from where I hit it right there because oh. I had the blanket over my feet so I couldn't see I, I, I didn't see the step so I hit it with the front of my foot and Ow. then I went to go upstairs and there was a staircase that went right up to my grandparents bedroom where they were sleeping and off to the right was my room and I look up but there's this figure in white looking away from me like this figure that wasn't moving and I'm like oh this is insane I'm not going up and I think I stayed down there for like two hours not wanting to go up and then I looked and it was still there not moving I'm like well it hasn't done anything right now so it's probably not gonna do anything. So I finally, I, I gathered my courage and I just like ran up. I made a left as I got to the landing and I dove into my bed and I hid under the covers and then I fell asleep. Um, How old were you when this happened? I was probably nine, maybe. Eight or nine years old. Uh, Interesting. The next morning I was telling my grandparents and they wouldn't believe me. And they said, because they said there was no blanket hanging in the room. There was nothing. I mean, I looked at the room thoroughly and there wasn't anything. Either I was hallucinating or something weird happened. Later, talking to one of my aunts, she said, and she was not the only one to say this, she said that it was an angel watching over me. Many people have actually said this to me when I tell them that story. But, um, you know, once you open yourself up for that kind of thing, then then basically everything's fair play. And if, yeah. if angels are real, that means that demons are real, right? right. So so you can't have one without the other, in, in a sense. Um, the second story was like a night terror that I had um, where I was um, in my uncle's house who's deceased. Uh, he's, he was my, my great uncle. He's the, he was the husband of my grandmother's sister, basically. And I was in their house, which was actually designed by my grandfather, who was also an architect. And um, I was in there and there were people having a party and being really loud. And I remember he told me that my mission was to get these people out of his house because he didn't want people in his house. Um, and so I was there trying to get these people out of his house and I could tell he was going to be very mad at me if I didn't if be successful in my mission. So anyway, I woke up in the middle of it and I had like cold sweat and I'm like, oh, this shit was not good. Like I could tell this was beyond a regular nightmare. This was such a weird thing. Coincidentally, my grandparents were, this was like in the early 2000s, my grandparents were visiting from Colombia. They were here in Houston and we were playing cards and... Uh, I told them about this. I said, you know, I told my, my, my grandparents, you know, Ernesto, which is the man's name, was asking me to get rid of all uninvited guests to his house. And then my grandparents kind of like went pale a little bit. And I'm like, what's wrong? 
And he said, you know, uh, Ernesto didn't want his wife, which is my grandmother's sister, to sell the house after he died. He left that on his will. And he had told them very sternly never to sell that house. They were showing that house because they were about to sell it. And weird stuff was happening in that house. Paintings were falling off. Things were crashing. Uh, weird noises. Somebody was playing the piano. It was strange stuff was happening in the house. Even to this day, I just went to Colombia in February, in January. End of January, early February. I spoke to them. And they told me strange things to this day are still happening in that house. So Ernesto is just not having it. He's not having it. And he was actually my pediatrician because he was a doctor. And actually, fun story to tell, he actually saved my life when I was about four years old. Because we went out into a, have a picnic in, in, a, in some kind of field out in Colombia, and everybody fell asleep, and I was running. Uh, because somebody took off, there was a couple that took off, and I wanted to spy on them, so I took off running. And for some reason, Ernesto woke up, and he screamed at me, like, Andres, you know, like, stop. And I didn't know why he was screaming at me, and I stopped. And I was at the edge of a ravine, I was about to fall down a gorge into a waterfall. I was about to die, basically. Oof. And the man froze me in my tracks with one scream. And I, and the guy was the most soft-spoken guy I've met in my life. But I never heard that man scream like that before. And I froze. And they came and got me before I fell. I mean, it was... Wow. I don't know if there was a connection that was forged at that moment, since technically that's the only man that has ever saved my life, you know? Uh, so, I don't know. Weird things. I guess you interpret that how you will. I'm not going to pretend to like you know say things are true or untrue because I really don't know. But right. what I do know is that strange stuff that we can't really explain either scientifically or otherwise do happen, and we don't have a way to. And and this and, and I'm not just talking to talk. Every, everything goes back to Lovecraft, to the way that he was dreaming, to the things that he put in his stories. And those things didn't come out of thin air. Those things came because of of how kind of borderline mad he was in real life. Uh, yeah, and all the all the real problems that he had, <coughs> and he had quite a few of them. Yeah, and apparently he was a very prolific writer and a very picky one too. He would like correct other people's writings and stuff like that. And uh, in reading his part of his biography, I was reading that he was also friends with Harry Houdini, and he actually ghost write ghost wrote some stories for Houdini for either amazing or weird tales or something. Uh, and I guess before, before Houdini died or whatever. And uh, I'd love to go back and read some of those old ones. Yeah, read some of those old the old pulp magazines and see what all they were, what they were all about. Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be really awesome. And then, uh, then it's just a shame, you know, that uh, Lovecraft died so so young. I guess he was forty, what forty seven, maybe when he died. He died. Oh, in, I. He was born in in ninety in eighteen ninety, and he died in. 37 so yeah he was 47 years old when he died and uh, and Robert E. Howard yeah Robert E. Howard I think he was even younger when he died but Robert E. Howard actually committed Howard punched his own clock Um, yeah he was a notorious mama's boy and while he was sort of the you know the veer into the sort of virile masculinity that you you see in like Brand McMorn or Solomon Kane or Conan the Barbarian um he was very attached to his mother. Um, if you ever are interested, there's a movie called The Whole Wide World. Uh-huh. It's sort of a biopic with uh, Vincent D'Onofrio um, that deals with his his you know I guess love affair. He only really had kind of one real relationship with a woman that wasn't his mother. Uh huh. And it was 
it was a tumultuous one, just given the fact that he was kind of a... Uh, he was a pretty odd duck. So Whole Wild World was a movie, or...? It was. Oh, okay. Still is, as far as I know. Okay, when I typed it in, it told me it was an album. I'm trying to find the, the movie. Okay, there it is. Okay, I see it there. I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out. So that was about him. Yes. Uh, and again, Vincent D'Onofrio does a great job of it. Um, when I was first introduced to Howard, I had a uh, oh, Renee Selweger is in this thing. She is. She is the oh. love interest. Interesting. Um, but yeah, I had a uh, I was working with a guy who was really into Howard. Saw the film and he was like, "Yeah, I've, I've read all these you know all these biographical pieces on him. I've read." And so he was describing all this kind of craziness that this guy went through, and he said the movie was actually pretty accurate. So, okay, well, I'll have to watch that because I'm definitely interested. I think Ethan Sita would also be interested in watching that since he's starting to he's starting a game of Conan the Barbarian for us. So, mm-hmm. so that should be fun. He he still hasn't watched the Conan the Barbarian movies. I need to show him that. Well, and let's be honest, if you're going to do that, it has to be the Schwarzenegger version. Yep. Much yeah. as I like that, like Jason Momoa, he's just fine, but that's, he's not my Conan. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. He's, he's I want everything low budget. I want Conan saying as little as possible. Yep. And, you know, James Earl Jones. Can't go wrong. <laughs> you got it. That's awesome. Yeah, I want I want to read. I watch him too. Now, the Red Sonia was that a spinoff off of uh, Conan, or was that its own thing? Um, so originally, it was. I don't remember if it was a direct spinoff. In other words, it was never really intended to be kind of in the same, kind of in the same world. But whenever they made the Red Sonia movie, it was very much they were they were pulling heavily on. Oh look, it's the same world as Conan because mm-hmm. you know there's Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's Conan, so Brigitte Bardot, <laughs> she's got to be in that world too. Yep. All right, cool. I, I did like the Red Sonia too. Thought that was a good movie. I mean, but the last time I saw it was what thirty years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, seeing it whenever you're a teenager, that's about the right age. <laughs> That's about when you want to. That's the sweet spot. I was that. probably fifteen or fourteen when I saw that movie. The last time I saw it, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So, but I think that we could touch on the der- derivative works of H.P. Lovecraft. Things that have kind of stood on him, on his work, um, and people that like Stephen King. That are actually, you know, great writers in their own right. If you like Stephen King, um, but you know, people that can hold their own, but that have also used Lovecraft as inspiration for their works. Well, and the thing that's kind of funny is, is if you're looking at movies for Lovecraft, mm-hmm. I have never seen an H, with the exception of the Dunwich Horror, which I love on a, it's not even so much an ironic level, but I appreciate what it was trying for and how bizarre it was. Um, Lovecraft stories don't really translate perfectly into movies. Um, the last one I saw was, uh, it was just called Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was by this uh, little production company they were trying to do apparently they focused on LGBT you know media to try and kind of you know bring that voice into the scene mm-hmm. and it was call of, or it wasn't call of Cthulhu it was uh, well it was sort of a derivation of it but mm-hmm. 
point is just this guy goes home and and they're trying to you know he's gay and they're they don't approve of his lifestyle because he should be settling down and raising a family and it turns out that they're like the the priests of cthulhu and they're going to get him back into the you know the the straight lifestyle by having tory spelling try and put really? the moves on him yeah what is this scream I, well, I remember doing that a lot while watching it because if I didn't mention it before, the the key romantic subplot there was Tori Spelling. Oh no. So but then you look at just the the all the different movies that have that have drawn on even just the imagery. I mean you've got mm-hmm. some of the classics of horror that while they aren't Lovecraft specifically, you know that they don't exist without it. I mean, mm-hmm. look at a movie like uh, Event Horizon. Yeah. No tentacle monsters, no, ma- you know, but but that subplot, that sub subconscious madness that's preying on everybody, the way it manifests itself was brilliant. Yeah, um, that, was, that was really good. You look at, uh, I mean, even like uh, the original Hellboy, the monster they're trying to keep out of this dimension is a giant tentacle beast floating uh-huh. in space. Yeah. And so, well, again, you don't get the same tone to it. You definitely get that that feel that oh, <laughs> you know, Guillermo del Toro. We know where he, where he's where his head's at. Yeah, I love Guillermo del Toro. That guy's one of my my idols. I don't know. He's pretty. Cool. Yeah, he's he's one yeah. of the greats. Um, was that the same actor from Event Horizon? Was that the same guy from The Mouth of Madness? What's the name of that actor? Um, I'm not. I haven't seen which one was the. What year was uh, in The Mouth of Madness? Mouth of Madness was 1994, and that to me was a very accurate Lovecraftian movie. I think probably the closest one, other than Event Horizon, really. Uh, because it deals with a writer that's trying to bring around, it's trying to bring all the monsters into our world. So he's trying to like tr- turn everybody insane. And in an insane world, the only insane people are the sane people that they they, right. they get turned. And so little by little, things start changing in the real world, and it's it's extremely interesting. Uh, uh, fictitious cities uh, from Lovecraft, uh, or you know. Basically, the name of the guy is Sutter Kane, I think, the name of the author. And the, but, but Sutter Kane is pretty much H.P. Lovecraft, like, you know, the, the kind of superimposed his name on real-life H.P. Lovecraft, kind of. You know, it's just an author that's kind of insane. And people become right. obsessed with his works. And everybody who reads his books starts seeing things that are not there. But the Oh, more, I, yeah. I have seen that movie way back in the day. Mm-hmm. I just remember seeing it as you were describing it. Because, yes... And again, that was a really well done movie too. Um. And and uh, one of the one of the favorite uh, lines from that movie is suddenly the guy appears next to the main character in a bus and he says, "By the way, did I mention my favorite color was blue?" And then the guy opens his eyes and everything is in a blue hue. Everything that he's looking at is blue and he can't get rid of it and he starts freaking out and screaming. And then he wakes up. He was having like a nightmare, but you know, the the more frequent the nightmares be become the more apparent it feels like the real world is the world of the nightmare and not the world of when you wake up until basically you're stuck in the world of a nightmare and you don't really wake up it's just uh, it's a, you sink slowly into that kind of madness and that's why it's called in the mouth of madness you're there and then you're sinking into this world that's fictitious but then the fictitious world becomes a real world and that's it, it kind of turns the world on its head 
Uh, it's yeah. pretty. I highly recommend that movie. In the Math of Madness, Fair 1994. Enough. Yeah. And if we're we're talking, Sam my very Sam favorite. Neil, I think is the name of the actor. Sam Neil. It was Sam Neil. Yes. Okay. As soon as you said that, it, it was Sam Neil. Okay. Um. But if we're talking, for my money, the best Lovecraftian film ever is John Carpenter's The Thing. The Thing. Um, yep. You just he took a campy sci-fi B movie from like the 1950s mm-hmm. that was in its own right a very good movie. It actually had a really wry sense of humor that wasn't really common at the time, but turned it into that. He, he actually had the cosmic horror. He had the the loss of sanity. He had the he just the visual effects that were just so spot on. It was it's it's a movie that to this day can still give me the creeps. Mm-hmm. It is, and it's and it, it deals with Lovecraftian topic specifically because Lovecraft uh, his monsters were extraterrestrials, but to clarify, mm-hmm. they were not the Area Fifty One typical bobhead alien thing with the long fingers that people just always draw. You know. They're more like there's these ancient ones in the universe, outside in the darkness, that uh, could at any point in time destroy us, but that they regard us as so insignificant, they don't even bother, basically. Right, they just don't take notice. They don't take notice, but, however, there are some lesser ones who actually came here to this world a long time ago, before there was even life on this planet or whatever, and they have been dormant under the ocean, waiting for people to reactivate them in a way. And uh, that's where it kind of... That's why I, in the show notes I mentioned the movie Pacific Rim. Even though it's a mech movie about monsters and stuff like that, they are coming from the deep trench in the ocean, the Marianas Trench in the ocean, and and that has somewhat of a Cthulhu origin, where right. that's it's not the Marianas Trench is not what Ezra uh, referred to. He referred to kind of like the what we know now as a Nemo point, which is the point in the Pacific that's the farthest away from any landmass. And I talked uh, to Ben Burns about this. The Nemo point was not discovered until 1997. But in the Cuddle of the Cthulhu short story, Lovecraft pinpointed those coordinates. And he puts those coordinates in his book. And it's, very, it's not exactly on the Nemo point, but it's not too far from it. And wow. At some points you say coincidence, it doesn't matter, whatever. I don't know. I don't, at some point, I don't know how, how much you can go with coincidence. As to there's like, why, why does this coincide with a Nemo point? You know, what, what's the deal with this? You know, right. kind of strange. But anyway, there's there's creatures coming out of the ocean because there's cultists that are praying to them with weird idols, and so they're giving them power, and they're rising from the ocean. And once they rise, they start turning everybody insane. I mean, Cthulhu was only out of the ocean maybe for a day or so, or a couple of days, and people were having nightmares all over the world, and cultists were having ceremonies and things, and things were starting to go awry everywhere. And then he sank again, and then everything became went back to normal. So... So that's why I called in the show notes like Pacific Rim because yeah it's it's a fun movie I like it wasn't that Guillermo del Toro as well? Um, uh, it was, and, and then he made a he made a second one which he should not have done. I didn't see the second one. I'll watch it someday, but I but I don't I don't think that it's got the uh, the I way mean, people talk about it doesn't have the same power as the first one. But um, it's not as well. It's it's not as good a story. It's not as fun. And honestly, watching Scott Eastwood try and read a line it's just mm-hmm. it's painful it is <laughs> that's funny 
But uh, in essence, it's a portal, right? It's a portal that at the bottom of the ocean, there's some aliens that are trying to push these monsters into the earth to like take over it, right? I mean, is that right to terraform? So basically, in the way that there's portals here, Lovecraft pretty much he believed in quantum mechanics. He believed in science over spirituality, actually, which is weird, because the cult of demonology or the cult of Satan that was started in the sixties in the states, I you know. Mm-hmm. was started because of Lovecraft, because they loved his works and they used him as inspiration. Yet, they didn't catch on to the fact that the guy did not believe in, in religion. The guy believed no. in science, and he believed that the universe was so immense that there were things out there that were real and they were coming to get us. At that point, you don't need the scary monsters from the Bible to scare you, because in his mind, there were real monsters out there that were coming to get us. Uh, and they were yeah. just traveling through different dimensions. In Call of the Cthulhu, he describes everything has been non-euclidean geometry like angles and things that that we don't understand so we're looking at things that our brains can't process because you can't see how they work like things are falling upwards in a way and then turning around corners that don't exist uh, in a way describing different dimensions that we are not privy to uh, and so this this beings are not only from outer space they're interdimensional beings in a way that you know creates like portals to different worlds so it's very interesting. And in the thing, obviously, the thing comes in a comet, right? Or in a meteorite or something? Well, it's actually in a spaceship. Oh, it's a spaceship? Right, it's the spaceship okay. that crashes and they thaw it out. Okay, gotcha. And, uh, and yeah, you don't know who's infected, and so they're all cutting themselves and testing their blood, right, to see which one is... Uh, Correct. Which then one? you use a defibrillator and the guy's chest eats you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, it, you, like, like you do. That, <laughs> like you do normally. And then the other big thing that Lovecraft came up with is the Necronomicon. Yes, a true staple of of any good horror nowadays. Yeah, and that uh, brings us to uh, the Evil Dead movies. And the first Evil Dead came out... all good things do. All good things in this world bring us to the Evil Dead movies. The 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 first first Evil Dead was... Was was that early 80s? Um, Look that one up, because uh, I've... A few years ago, I read. Um, yeah. yeah, I read Bruce Campbell's autobiography, uh, "Chins Could Kill," mm-hmm. and there's a whole section where he talks about working on that film. Oh well, yeah, yeah, I did read that book too. That was an awesome book. book. Chins Could Kill. Yeah, I it's it's brilliant, and just the the love and attention, just the kind of campy good times that they were having, and they made just a terrific, terrific B movie. Uh, as was observed by Steep, your old uh, oh, yeah. college. Hey, is this a bee movie? <laughs> well, Steep, there, uh, there's a tree violating a woman, so yeah, I think this falls immediately into that category. <laughs> and then, uh, and then Campbell is saying in his book also how little movie, how little money they made up for those movies. People always think, oh, well, he's really well off. It's like, if you think about it, I'm doing like three jobs every single movie. I'm having to carry cameras and all this crap because there's no extras. There's nobody to help them do this stuff. This is so low budget that he's got to do everything pretty much. And well, he, he was only getting paid like maybe 40000 But if you think about it, that's 40000 during like the span of like four or five years. Or something yeah. Like it's like, yeah, I'm not making money. I have to find another job to make money. So. For me, the part that kind of blew my mind was that uh, the editing on that movie was done basically by the Cohen brothers. Uh, they and Sam Raimi apparently go way, way back to film school together. So anytime you've got a Coen Brothers film, Sam Raimi's got something going on there. Anytime you've got a Sam Raimi movie, you know, the, the Coens have got some little fingerprint on it. It's, uh, it's really fun. 
That is pretty cool. I didn't realize I got into the... To the same school. I'm just typing here to look them up a little bit. And then, uh, let's see. Yeah, and then they're describing the Necronomicon, which is this uh, volume that's like bound inflation written in blood. I'm not sure that's how Lovecraft described it, though, but I guess they took some liberties with with what this book was, basically. Um, I don't know if Lovecraft that may have been in the book that was used to call Cthulhu or something, or maybe had some rights uh, or some instructions on how to perform cults, you know, uh, ceremonies. Uh, yeah. Like and uh, I think I was reading a, a book that Ethan Sito gave me that was like uh, studying the, the effects of Lovecraft on, on true like witchcraft and people that consider themselves like real magicians or whatever. And, um, and saying how Lovecraft did draw a little bit from the witchcraft. I mean, specifically, he was born in Rhode Island, you know, there's Massachusetts next to it, right? So, um, inferring in, in the way that all kind of you have a lot of cult of people, and it's actually a cult of people that are following Cthulhu, and I think it kind of borrowed from from real life in the terms of all the witch covenants, which at some point, what's it called, the Cotton Mather or whatever, was trying to prove that witches actually ran in covenants, and it wasn't just like isolated incidents, it was like a, a whole underground movement in Europe and in America, and that they spoke to each other, and that they were, they formed like a whole society of witches, and witches right. or whatever. And so that's kind of where his cultist, you know, uh, portion comes in. Because he's a cultist that are trying to call back Cthulhu and all that stuff. So I believe some of the major rites and rituals were written down in that book that he comes up with in the Necronomicon. So. Well, and uh, speaking of Cotton Mather, um, just for my own edification, because I always have to teach, if I'm teaching 11th graders, I have to teach the book The Crucible. Mm-hmm. I've actually been reading uh, the Malleus Maleficorum, which is the uh, book that these early witch hunters would use to identify witches oh, and right. you know how to deal with them. Mm-hmm. And it is it's really funny because most of it is just sort of the legalistic side of it. Um, in fact, it actually tells why you have to to try a witch in civil court rather than in in in, in a basically an inquisition court. Wow. Um, that's actually yeah it's 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 pretty crazy but again it's one of those things that Cotton Mather actually would have been using whenever he was doing it and even it says that there has to be where there's one there's probably more mm-hmm. yes exactly there's th- this is coming from somewhere this is not an isolated incident um, right. I mean I'm not saying they didn't burn a bunch of innocent people but I'm thinking that something there was there must have been a grain of truth in there somewhere. Well, and the thing is, first of all, uh, in America, we didn't burn anybody. We hanged oh, you, them Oh, you hung them, that right. There was no yeah. witch burning. That's a Yeah, we, we, we were more civilized about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, and it, it again, it, it just delves into that whole paranoia of, you know, the other, that there's something out there trying to get at us and we're, you know, we're either not important enough for it to know about, and it's just going to step on us like we step on ants, or mm-hmm. it, even worse, it knows we're there, and it's it's kind of waiting for us to mess up so that we can, you know, it can use us to do horrible things. Yeah. And yeah, it can take over almost like a possession thing. Right. So if you've got that kind of mentality already built in, it's, uh, 
it's what hor- it's what uh, Lovecraft was horrified about. It was the other. It was this something out there that wants in here. And in the Call of the Cthulhu role-playing game that is expressed by different characters have different sanity attributes. Some have more sanity than others. Therefore, some are more strong-minded than others. And the premise is people that are weaker, that who had weaker minds, are more susceptible to a kind of uh, a suggestion, I guess. And that at some point they could be pushed over the precipice a little bit easier than other people. And, and that it was, in, in theory, the people that were the strong-minded people that joined together to try to stop the coming of Cthulhu. But in reality, the party is composed of both weak-willed and strong-willed people. And it could, Interesting. it could happen that you have one weak-willed person in the group that gets taken over, that person suddenly becomes a cultist and he starts murdering the rest of the party, right? So <laughs> you, have to, you have to worry about that weak link whenever you're, you're running around the world trying to solve mysteries. Well, I've never so. played that RPG, and it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun, because I do like that aspect of, eh, now you're a bad guy. <laughs> well, I'm suddenly, I don't consider myself an expert in any Cthulhu or Lovecraft. I'm studying right now on it. That's why I've been reading so much about it lately, but I'm, I'm reading a lot because I'm planning to do the first adventure in Halloween this year. Um, and that's how long it's going to take me to really, like, brush up on the 20s and, you know, brush up, read some, of his, some more of his short stories. Specifically, I think The Hound is where the Necronomicon maybe first appeared. I'm not sure. I think that short story is important. So I need to read that, and I need to get more familiar with his, his writing. So I can, you know, in D&D, I always felt comfortable, like, running adventures, because that's been my life since I was little. But H.P. Lovecraft right. in the 20s in the States is not my forte. But, but I find it very interesting. So I do want to study up on both American culture and and Lovecraft to like just, deliver a, a, a nice performance as a dungeon master or as a game master, you know. So here's what you do: you just read The Great Gatsby. Every time Tom Buchanan is mentioned, <laughs> just put an octopus for a head. <laughs> and you're good. You've got it all right there. <laughs> okay. Well, I did read that book more than once, and actually, I do like The Great Gatsby a lot. That's a oh, it's a fantastic read. That's I really awesome. enjoyed it. But let's talk about a sensitive character that probably was influenced at some point by the Cthulhu mythos, and that is Slenderman. And people may be rolling their eyes right now saying, oh, no, not Slenderman, whatever. That's so cheesy. Uh, so, uh, I've, I've got two kids. One of them's nine, one of them's seven. Mm-hmm. They're in grade school. So, of course, I have heard so much about Slenderman. And... The, the only thing that I, I'm really happy about is that uh, my son, sensitive little spirit that he is, mm-hmm. he didn't like that Slenderman didn't have a face, so every time he draws him with like the suit and the tentacles and everything, mm-hmm. gives him a big happy face. He's <laughs> clearly doing what he wants, and yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's walking around outside, talking to people. He's probably, probably pretty happy. Yep, he's just a happy dude. But, I mean, every... From, from researching, a while back, uh, Adriana and I went to see uh, the latest Slenderman movie, which got trashed by both audiences and critics. <laughs> not surprising. But, in a way, I actually was not I was not unhappy with it. I may be in the minority, but I was looking at it from a different point of view. Because it is okay. very much written like a Lovecraftian movie, in the way that there's... A, like, the kids are becoming insane, little by little, whenever they have exposure to the Slenderman. And, and I'm like, dude, this is... This is straight up Lovecraft, and this is awesome. But maybe because I have that background of kind of understanding Lovecraft a little bit more than the average person. But that's what pulled me in. 
you know, critics hated it. Other people, the regular people, thought it was boring, and the and the movie didn't really move. I thought it was perfect. I thought the pacing of the movie was perfect. It was it was slow, and and little by little, the kids were sinking into this thing where they started seeing him, and oh crap! And once you see him, then you start going down this this little slide into madness. And I thought that was interesting. But then I started researching him a little bit, and I guess every culture kind of has a version of Slenderman, and also the American. Uh, what the American Indians were the you know Aborigines here in the states, in, in what is later to be called the United States, they had a version of Slenderman. Even uh, Josh Whedon put a version of Slenderman in one of his episodes of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where it was that episode that you have those those slender people like smiling the whole time and they, they take oh, away right, everybody's uh, voice or something. It was a freaky right. episode, man. That was one of my it favorite was. episodes of Buffy. It was. Um, <laughs> it was cool. There's also been like sightings of Slenderman in England, and there's there's a legend of the Slenderman in England too, and stuff like that. But I, I think that that's kind of like a very Lovecraftian thing. It's a very Lovecraftian monster, and in, yeah. in, in the way that it comes and it kind of seduces you, and and the danger is not apparent right away. You just see something that kind of freaks you out a little bit, and you don't fully understand what it is, and you never do, and that's what drives oh, people so insane. You know, you never understand, and. And then as I was researching more, I realized in 2013, 2014, there was that incident with the girls that they tried to kill this other girl. I don't remember exactly. Oh, they did. What. They, they um, did kill her. Oh, they did kill her? Yes. I thought it was uh, just attempted. I didn't realize it, it was successful or whatever. No, they actually succeeded. Oh, wow. And so one of them is, if I remember correctly, one of them's in prison or juvie. She's going to spend a lot of time in there, and the other one is... Uh, basically uh, sentenced to um, mental health facility. Yeah. But that that's a scary part about Lovecraft's writing, that it's something that, you know, people do go insane in real life. And he was yeah. going insane in real life. His, his father went insane in real life. And I think his mother, too, at some point. So it's, it is scary, I guess, for anybody who's got any, any family that's kind of borderline insane or, you know, have some kind of mental disorder. That's, that's really scary in real life. Even it without is. the monsters or anything, that that's kind of that's got to be pretty scary. Well, so. hum, we are creatures of our chemistry, mm-hmm. and it's it's a very real thing. Right after college, I spent three years as the director of operations at a mental health facility, and uh, for every most of the people there were taking their meds and were being you know stand up citizens. They were mm-hmm. doing the best they could with a bad draw, but every so often, one of them would just completely go off the rails and uh it was it was weird because it it did have a very other earthly feeling yeah to have somebody you know who's actively hallucinating who's actively you know seeing things chasing after you with a piece of closet doweling um and it doesn't matter you can't really talk them down at that point because Mm -hmm. while you can calm them a little bit they're still seeing you know, they're still seeing the the things from the other dimensions flying around their head. They're still hearing the voices. Yeah, and it's 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 a pretty unsettling experience. I can imagine. I mean, I did you know growing up in in Colombia, sometimes I would I would run into insane people on the streets. <laughs> and when you're yeah. a kid walking alone or walking from the bus stop, and you run in, run into insane people, like you know they're insane and they're they're aggressive. It's it's an extremely scary experience to meet somebody that has no boundaries. Yeah, uh, that at any point, in, in any second, they may decide that you it might be fun to kill you. <laughs> and you're yeah. like, oh shit, or, you know. 
or that that's the thing that's going to set the scales right in their head somehow. Exactly. It's just like, wow. And it is a very scary, because with regular people, you can talk them down or you can, like you were saying, you can talk regular people down. But when somebody that's that far gone, you just got to brace for impact. I don't know what else to, you know, you just yep. hope that, hope for the best. Brace for impact, hope for the best, you know? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, let's let's switch to the more cheery movie, The Faculty. I don't know if you saw The Faculty back in uh, with one of my very favorite Elijah Wood movies. One of the few movies where John Stewart was a main character, right? Or not not necessarily the main character, but he was one of the because John Stewart normally just does his talk show or did his talk show. He wasn't in a lot of movies other than like maybe Men in Tights and and The Faculty, right? And a couple of others. Uh, yes, Daddy, and I the think. fact that he played that completely straight. He wasn't playing the funny guy. He was mm -hmm. just this science professor that was looking at this strange tentacle fish thing that these kids had found. Yeah. And uh, let's see, this movie was 1998. And I actually love this movie. I rewatch this movie once every couple of years because I just like it. Uh, <laughs> I think it's awesome. It's just funny and scary at the same time. And I don't know, the, the whole high school thing, kind of like the Stranger Things when you have a bunch of kids in school. And they figure out that everybody else is really weird and something bad is happening and they're the only ones that can stop it. I don't know. I kind of find that interesting, that kind of premise. Well, so. because if you think about high school, it, from a psychological standpoint, it is. Because you... <laughs> everybody else is a pushback, right? Like, <laughs> right. You fall into like your little clique and you're looking at everybody else. And you're like, These people are all nuts. They're going to destroy the world. Yep. Pretty much. Either that or end up working at the car wash. Well, yeah, and then you can't go there anymore. <laughs> yeah, you can't go there anymore. So so the faculty was very much, in a sense, a Lovecraftian movie in the sense that it was an extraterrestrial that came down to Earth in disguise and was starting to infect humans, right? Right. With this little leeches like Night of the Creeps. I don't know if Night of the Creeps would qualify also as a Lovecraftian movie. I don't know if you agree with that or not. We have this little slug sticking over people and things like that. But, but uh, again, for my money, if you're gonna, if it's gonna be classified as a true Lovecraftian film, there has to be an element of paranoia involved as well. And with the faculty, you definitely got that. And tentacles. And tentacles. <laughs> that came tentacles. out of their face when it rained. <laughs> and and also when the the little girl goes into the swimming pool and she turns into this huge beast, and you can definitely see tentacles like you know there, like when she gets out of the pool, I could swear there's tentacles like behind her. Oof. Um, yeah. It is. Yeah, that's, that, that, is a, that is a freaky, freaky scene. So, <laughs> so yeah, the faculty, that's another one. And I think in, in most, like, you know, modern horror and stuff like that, here and there, there's some... Yeah, just bring it. Talking about... Uh, what's his face from Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Josh Whedon? Didn't he, mm -hmm. do, he, didn't he do that Cabin in the Woods movie? He did. He was one of the part of the production staff on that one. And that's pretty much Cthulhu on the other side waiting to come out. <laughs> it is, and I love that it's not only kind of a loving homage to that Cthulhu mythos, but it's also a complete takedown of absolutely every horror movie ever. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. Uh, my wife is not a horror movie fan. It mm -hmm. takes something... My wife has a very specific range of movies that she likes, and it takes something very specific outside of her normal comfort zone to get her to watch it. She really liked that movie. Um, she's never a horror movie fan, but the fact that you could kind of go through and you had that the the sense of humor that went along with it. Um, yeah, you make fun of all the tropes. 
They have a werewolf right, in every a glass time cage. You watch it. <laughs> right, every time you watch it, you have to pause and like look at the the board of all the monsters that you know were that were that they could free, and uh, yeah, the like, fact that there's witches, and then right under that, sexy witches, and then hillbillies, <laughs> cannibal <laughs> hillbillies. Yeah. Oh, and Kevin. We, we we don't know what that is, but but Kevin is up on the board as well. <laughs> okay, maybe I don't want to find out what Kevin can do. I, I don't. I wanted. I could see mer people being way more fun than dealing with Kevin. Oh yeah, that's funny that that guy got killed by mer people because he always wanted to use them in one of the scenarios. That's. So that was really well, fun. it it was a lot of fun. I really really appreciated that movie. And then mummies are always kind of funny until they actually try to attack you and kill you. Right. Then they kind of become freaky. And so there you get to see like them crossing over from the fun side into the like, oh shit, we're going to die. Right. Um, we're going to die in a very painful way. Unless you're Tom Cruise and then you're just like, eh. Eh. why would you even bother? <laughs> oh, she has, she has four eyes. That's a medical condition. I don't know why that's scary. Doesn't speak English. Well, <laughs> definitely to blow that up. <laughs> that's a medical condition, yeah. Um, so, well, at this point, uh, I guess we make a pause because at this point we're going to insert the interview with uh, Ben Burns. Okay. Uh, I believe he's uh, lead designer of Comet Games. Actually, I believe Comet Games is his company. Uh, sorry, new. It's not Comet Games, it's new Comet Games. And he's a lead okay. designer and I believe he owns the company as well. So, following is his interview. Well, I guess we can get started. Huh? I don't want to, you know, waste too much of your time. And I just have a, like a, a set of questions about the Cthulhu mythos. Um, you know, since I bought your your book, I've been reading the the instructions for you know the core manual for Call of the Cthulhu game. Yeah. And um, I read through. I pretty much read everything page by page. I'm all the way up to chases right now. Oh wow! Uh, but, <laughs> well, I, I wanted because it's a new system. I you know, I want to really understand it well. Uh, okay. When I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, a lot of times I wouldn't read everything. I would just skip around. So I started with like second edition AD and D, and a lot of times I just started making up stuff because I didn't really know what I was doing <laughs> because I didn't read everything. So now yeah. that I'm an adult and you know I have more discipline, I guess <laughs> I, I, I I like to you know read read everything. Plus, I find it enjoyable. I don't know. I do book. like the the way the book is written. I haven't. Yeah, it's good book. I haven't delved too much into the book that you wrote yet because um, I don't want to spoil myself right now, and I want to really learn how the mechanics work before I start uh, sure. trying to run an adventure. I'm thinking of having some friends over for Halloween this year to run like the first adventure in your book. So sweet, sweet. So now I'm not an expert. <laughs> I mean, I consider myself pretty good with the rules, but I yeah. write them. Oh. oh well, I don't. I don't know much about the rules, so I mean, all you have oh, to do okay. is know a little bit more than I do. <laughs> no, no, but I'm not here to to quiz you about rules or anything. I'm more interested in you know your your writing and and how you got to be in this spot in your life. So uh, maybe I should just start with the first question in my notes here, which is: Can you give us a little background on your life? Well, first of all, your name and your a background on your life with respect of how you got interested in gaming overall. Okay, well, uh, I'm Ben Burns, and uh, I started gaming when I was probably about four years old, so oh. <laughs> I've, I've been gaming my whole life. Wow, uh, that's awesome. 
and uh, I had two older brothers, and and they were a couple of years older than me, so I couldn't, you know, compete with them with, uh, you know, sports and stuff like that. But I could I could beat them when it came to board games, and that's where it uh, that's where I learned a, a true love for board games, and uh, and then got into role playing games. Is you know the first time I heard about Dungeons and Dragons, and mm-hmm. I was in high school, I just fell in love with it before I even knew what it was you know yeah just hearing about it so i was like so that's that's where i got started into it and uh i started dming uh probably about i'd only been playing about two or three months and the other players uh didn't like our current dm Uh so they kind of threw me into it so (laughs) it was uh i'm assuming that was first edition uh, advanced or i guess yeah yeah. AD&D, first edition. Mm-hmm. So they they bought a module for me and said, here, you're deeming in 30 minutes. And oh, that's wow. how my deeming started. <laughs> so, And I've been doing it ever since. I love it so much more behind the screen than in front of the screen. And, uh, yeah. uh, so, and I run a lot of different game systems now, you know. And to me, the rules, while I always try to stick to the rules and play by them, to mm-hmm. me, they're secondary to the storytelling and yes. the interaction with the other players. So, yes, you know, I think I would I would agree with that. You know, being at the end for a while too, I, I got to that conclusion as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I found that when I when I was trying to be a stifler about the rules, players started losing interest in the game. Uh, it was almost like yeah. it was the game against them, and not so much what's happening in the story, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, you got to get the mood going. You got to get the players into it, you know. And I, as a DM, I prefer to lose. I like seeing my players, you know, cheering and jumping up and down and high fiving, you know. Yeah. But by the by the same token, I don't pull punches. You know, mm-hmm. if somebody dies, somebody's gonna die, and that's just part of the game. But I think them knowing that mm-hmm. uh, helps the game. Because then there's a fin- uh, a sense of fear there that, you know, my gosh, he'll actually kill my character if I don't do this right, you know. Yeah, I think and, that's a sense uh, of immersion, right? Yeah, and I, I think that helps. Okay, so, and it, with yeah. respect to, like, comparing, like, Dungeons and Dragons to Cthulhu, because I have, I've never played Cthulhu, but from what I hear, it's easier for your character to die in Cthulhu, so I guess that either even heightens it more, would you say? Well, I... <sighs> I don't know if it's easier to die. Um, if you don't know what you're doing, it's definitely easier to die. Mm-hmm. It, it really depends on the DM. I've I've run D and D games with DMs that will kill your characters, you know, pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Cthulhu, you, you can't really. It's like comparing apples and oranges. It's a completely different style of game. Uh, if you're fighting the monster and you don't know already how to beat it, you're probably going to die. Um, okay. That's so you your homework. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot more about investigation and trying to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's there's a reason library use is one of the biggest skills used in Call of Cthulhu. Okay. Your characters a lot of times spend time at the library, you know, trying to figure out what the heck they're looking at or trying to put pieces of puzzles together to to figure out how to move forward in whatever they're doing and when you come face to face with the mythos usually at the Mm -hmm. end at that point if 
like I said, if you don't already know how to beat it, chances are your pistol or your shotgun or whatever you're carrying is going to do very little to what you're dealing with. Okay. okay. So there's usually other ways to defeat things besides just straight shooting. Okay. I mean, th sometimes that works, but most of the time not. So anyway, that's, you know, uh, that that's my take on it. So it's a lot more of the investigation, a lot more of the immersion and trying to find the mythos and in addition you have sanity to deal with uh -huh. um in D, D, about the only mental thing that ever comes into play is you know like oh you have to make a fear test right yeah well in uh call of cthulhu every time you see anything that's um abnormal or as you learn about stuff your character's take sanity checks okay. and your sanity and your sanity goes down over the course of the game so if you started with 70 sanity points and you lose a couple now your sanity's at 68 and then you're trying to beat that score and then it's 65 and then it's 60 and it, it keeps going down and down during the game it's kind of like hit points that yeah. you don't get back generally until the game's over um and if you lose too many points at one time, your character can go insane and do all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and if you lose too many overall, then you uh, can go insane that way as well. And a lot of times, more characters go insane than they do die. Okay. And that actually fits more with uh, the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, which is what everything's based on to begin with, right? Yeah. Um, uh, in his stories, if you read his actual uh, books, mm -hmm. his, his heroes usually end up going insane or dying in the books. Okay. And the, the game kind of mimics that in a way. So, anyway, that's oh. it, it's rare to have characters last more than two or three or four adventures <laughs> without either going completely insane or dying. So, if, if your character goes completely insane, does that mean that they become an unplayer character at that point? Do you lose them? Uh, well, there, there is ways to improve their sanity to get mm -hmm. them back into the game, uh, but usually requires time out, you know, uh, going to an insane asylum for a little while or, you know, getting some serious psychotherapy and stuff like that. And that, that can be done in, in the game, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like between uh, adventures and stuff like that, but uh, it's usually a time lapse type thing, not, you know, oh, well, here, let me throw a spell on you and you're you're patched up back ready to go again okay so. so does that mean it's it's good for a person to have maybe a couple of characters so they can play one while the other one is recuperating is that something yeah. that's done yeah that's done a lot i don't i don't actually run a, a regular campaign mm -hmm. and so i do mostly one-offs here and there uh, you know at conventions uh i I don't have a regular group that that uh, wants to play Call of Cthulhu. We actually play D and D on a regular <laughs> basis now, uh, but I love the game, and uh, you know, it's Call of Cthulhu is great for doing one-offs. Uh, and then I have had players who carry, you know, from one game to the next game, and they they bring in the same character, or they have okay, he's off to the Insane Asylum, so I'm going to bring in a new character. Yeah, yeah, that's that's not unusual at all. So okay, cool. Well, you mentioned H.P. Lovecraft, and at what point did you discover him, and what drew you into his writing or to writings that have been influenced by him? Uh, really, uh, the first time I even heard of H.P. Lovecraft was when I opened up the Deities and Demigods first edition, oh. and it had the Cthulhu mythos in there, yeah. and I was like. I, n I never even heard of this before, and it just 
you know the the images that Earl Otis uh, drew in there just it just sucked me in and uh, you know when I was I was in the Navy for a while uh-huh. and you get a lot of downtime so I did a lot of reading and uh, you know I read just about everything I could get my hands on and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft was one of those so that's interesting that you were reading him while you were in the Navy because. Cthulhu lives under the sea, right? I mean, was that something yeah. that made you kind of nervous at night when you were <laughs> back in the middle of the ocean somewhere, wondering what you're reading? Uh, I actually would, once in a while, just like, come on, just, just give me a sign here, buddy. I'm on up here. They supposed to be down in the South Pacific. I never went down that way. Okay, so. yeah. Well, talking about the South Pacific, because I recently read the Call of the Cthulhu short story, and oh, in yeah, there a, he, he, he gives specific coordinates to where the island, how do you pronounce it, Rayleigh or something like that? Rayleigh? Yeah, Rayleigh. Uh, Rayleigh is how I pronounce it. But okay, yeah. he gave specific uh, what coordinates to where this yes. point is. And then I googled that, and then I found out that there's a point called a Nemo point, which is not too far from there. And from researching a little bit more, the Nemo Point is the farthest point in the ocean away from any landmass, island oh. or continental piece of land. And the, for, from what I from what I researched even farther, the Nemo Point was not established or calculated until 1997 or so. And so I'm wondering how the heck Lovecraft was able to pinpoint such a place with with the methods and means of the time i don't know i to me that's kind of weird i don't you know well, there were maps and charts that had mm-hmm. you know the latitudes and longitudes so we probably just looked at the map and said okay what's the biggest you know furthest from any land and, and yeah went there so that would be my guess i'm okay. not sure so because to me his writings are a curiosity and i started you know reading his his biography and um Figuring out that he he was not really into he didn't believe in the supernatural as much as he believed in actual science and quantum mechanics is that right? Um, to be honest, I don't know. I've read a little bit about him, but you know he he was a very strange individual. Yeah. You know his his eating habits and stuff like that, and and you know basically he starved himself to death. Oh, he did. But yeah, he he said he died of malnutrition. Oh, uh, was one one thing i've read but um no i just um you know i I haven't gotten into much uh, of his beliefs and stuff like that you know i know he was a a racist (laughs) but that's that's what i've heard i you know yeah yeah but But then again this was the 20s and there were a lot of people who were like that just about every other person was pretty racist back then i imagine i don't know that was just a way of life i imagine yeah so anyway but you know he i I don't worry too much about the person. It's more about the yeah, uh, about the writing. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, f- I find some of his novels very difficult to read. Uh, they, they get a little wordy. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, I prefer more of his short stories and stuff like that. And I love the synopsis of his other stories and how they all come together. But his, his actual writing of, you know, like reading Mountains of Madness can, can drive someone insane. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I love the story, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, it's just tough to read So sometimes. Yeah, yeah. His stories are very intriguing. And they kind of grab you little by little, like gradually. And then before you know it, you're kind of invested in the character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's almost like you're looking through the eyes of the character. 
yeah. <coughs> and, and his stories are written from a point of view where you're just telling something that happened. It's not a question of whether it's fiction or not. Obviously, it's fiction, but, you know, it yeah. that never comes into account. The story happened. It's somebody telling something that happened to them in a very yeah. personal way that draws you in and makes you think, oh, this, this probably really happened. You know? I mean, I know it didn't really happen, but it, it's, it's a good uh, immersion, I guess, technique or tool that he uses. Oh, yeah. And I, I love, you know, how you get specific days and years of mm -hmm. this happened and this happened, you know. And uh, uh, one of the things, you know, I love that it's written in the 20s, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some people make fun of the fact that, you know, oh, Cthulhu was killed with a steamboat, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I heard uh, Sandy Peterson talking about this. You know, he's the one who wrote the game Call of Cthulhu. Mm -hmm. Um And uh, he was saying, you know, you have to remember, though, in the 20s, mm -hmm. the steamboat was like the peak of technology. That was the strongest thing we had at the time. Yeah. And, and that only took him, and that only injured him. You know what I'm saying? It, it, and that was the best man could do against him. That was the best we could hope for at the time. Yeah. He was saying if he, if he wrote it today, we drop a nuke bomb on him you know it, yeah, he exactly. said it's it's kind of the the equivalent right mm -hmm. so of the time period and you have to think of it in those terms so yeah. anyway which i thought was an interesting perspective so the the other thing i thought was interesting about his life is that he can he was a little bit insane right oh yeah from what i hear <laughs> <coughs> and that he had vivid dreams yes and and the, in the cuddle of the call of the cthulhu uh, short story it delves into this When, when the island right leg surfaces, spoilers for whoever hasn't read this, but the, the people start having synchronized nightmares, you could say, around the world, right? Right. Uh, and so that's something that it's interesting because, you know, I don't know if you ever had like vivid dreams. I've had vivid dreams. Oh, but, yes. <laughs> but you, you kind of interimpose yourself into his story. So you start believing this stuff as if it was if it, as if it were happening to you almost. Yeah. Like when you wake up at night and you're in a cold sweat and you could have sworn that what you just dreamed was something real, you know? Yeah, I think it's very possible. There's there's a lot that we don't understand mm -hmm. in life. And to assume we understand everything, <laughs> it's yeah. fooling ourselves, you know? Yeah. So I mean, from uh, that we, point of view, I was reading that he was not so much spiritual as he was scientific, where he believed that extraterrestrials obviously all these old ones and ancient ones are come from out, outside of the earth right but they right. live somewhere else in the universe right but they uh yes and some in different dimensions but in different but dimensions some, yeah, yeah some in other planets and stuff he had some living on pluto and some live you know further out and some in space and things like that yeah so. and i'm not saying i believe in alien abductions but i can't disprove them either But a lot of the people that, a lot of the stories, and I, there are some stories in Shreveport, not too far from where we are, um, Shreveport, Louisiana, where people have this uh, described being abducted like the wall disappears and they float. It, and it, it, oh, yeah? it kind of ties to what Lovecraft is saying or what you're saying about interdimensional beings. Uh, something that takes you into a different dimension. And also the, the way that he describes things in non-Euclidean geometry, Lovecraft, and he yeah. makes allusions to non-Euclidean geometry all the time because it's angles and things that could not possibly exist in our dimension and things that we can't understand. Right. When we look at them, and I guess that's part of what makes us insane, is that we are looking at something and we can't figure out how it's doing what it's doing. Um, yes. I, and I, then yeah. 
and then there's also this idea that Lovecraft put into a lot of his books is that um, we don't understand the vastness of the universe and everything else that's out there and how insignificantly small we are, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, in the 1920s, you know, you have to always kind of go back to that perspective, yeah. um, is that um, we were the center of the universe, right? Uh-huh. I mean, we weren't that many years from believing the sun rotated around us, right? Um, anyway, for us to peel back these layers and to see how insignificant we are and the vastness of everything else that's out there, that is what would drive people insane also. Okay. So, But even with our understanding right now, I mean, what, what, does it, what does it do to your understanding of religion when you, if you find out that there's extraterrestrials for real and that maybe we are not the center of the universe and maybe they worship different things that are way above our understanding? And what does that do for somebody's belief system? I mean, does that destroy no. a person from the inside out? I mean, what, you know? Well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, uh, you know, um, and to me, it doesn't change anything. So okay, well, that's that's, that's refreshing, or at least that's reassuring <laughs> at a certain point that you wouldn't go automatically insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, um, you know, I don't see, um, I don't see a reason why, you know, and I, I hope I'm correct <laughs> in believing in God, um, you know. Uh, but I don't see why God couldn't create Earth here and put man on it and create another planet over here and put a different species on yeah, it. Yeah, and create a universe. Uh, I mean, I believe yeah. in God in the same way that you believe in God in that sense that, you know, maybe somebody, you know, I don't know. To me, it's kind of impossible of a universe like this existing without something creating it. Yeah. Um, yet Lovecraft believes as many of the scientists or physicists, uh, astro- uh, what As- uh, astronomers, not astrologists, <laughs> yeah. the astronomers uh, believe that uh, that nothing can be created from. I mean, that something can actually be created from nothing, which is what Lovecraft seemed to believe. That uh, and there's this uh, sense of discovering. I mean, that was way before antimatter was discovered or dark matter or however you call yeah. it. Yeah. And, and so right. now that they're dealing with dark matter, some of the physicists are saying, you know, something can come out of nothing. And I'm like saying, but my brain does not compute that. Even in a physical sense, it is just as impossible for that to happen as it is for there to be a God and create things. One, one of the, they're both incredible to me. They're being a God right. that creates everything and they're not being a God. They're both just as insane. But one of them has to be true, right? Or maybe both at a certain level. I don't know. Anyway, it's it's. Kinda, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get. I don't into know if we want to get into theology, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, theology. I'm not a big theology guy. Yeah, but but, but this is I what don't. this is what. But Lovecraft kind of makes me think about sometimes when when I'm reading his stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah I understand. Uh, so. I I actually hope. <laughs> There's other life out there that we're not alone in the universe, yeah. but that's that's kind of me. So yeah, it, it's for philosophers who let them have it. Um, so I guess now let's talk about the 20s era because I find, for me personally, I was born in Colombia and I'm not as familiar with the culture. I mean, I studied history. I studied American history. Um, I became naturalized citizen back in 2000, and uh-huh. I. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> but, but I still feel like I have a big slice missing from my American history because I've never been to the East Coast. I've never been to New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, uh, Maine, uh, Massachusetts. I've never been into that area. And I think he was born in Rhode Island, right? Or somewhere around there? Yes. And, and so to me, 
I need like maybe some tips on how to immerse myself in the 20s era so I can be a little bit more confident about running a scenario for them in this era. Do you have any tips for me on that? Well, uh, Wikipedia is a great resource. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually, uh, I've, I've been to New York, uh, mm -hmm. and I lived in upstate New York for a while, but I've never, uh, and I think I've been to Massachusetts once, but I've never been to that area a lot, mm -hmm. right? And, of course, if you go now, it's, it's different than it was in the 20s. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you think about the 20s um, in the U.S., you know, this was in the roaring 20s before the stock market crashed, mm -hmm. uh, po post-World War One. you know, uh, and, um, you know, America was at the at the height of its, you know, it wasn't post-World War Two where mm -hmm. we were the dominant in the world. At this point, you know, Great Britain is still the dominant force in the world. Uh -huh. But um, it's, uh, you know, um, I'm not... <sighs> I don't know how to say it. I'm not sure exactly um, how immersed you need to get into it. You know, you, you got to think about prohibition is going on. And yeah. uh, so you have speakeasies going around and, you know, the cops are, are kind of doing their own thing. And, of course, you have the whole racial relationship uh, stuff. Yeah, I did it's, see that show called Boardwalk Empire, that HBO show, and I really loved it a lot. I kind of fell yeah. in love with that kind of era. And would you say that the U.S. had, like, a case of, like, I guess it was a good time for the country, right? Like, the, the self-confidence oh, yeah. of the country had just been asserted. Like, you know, the, the U.S. overcame its civil war, right? It unified. Then we had this war in Europe, which didn't really involve the U.S. directly, but it was just a mess in Europe. All countries fighting against each other for God knows what. Somebody assassinated a bishop, and then you end up fighting against each other. So, yeah. in a way, the U.S. was just kind of helping. They weren't directly involved. Is that right? Oh, the U.S. actually sent a lot of troops over there, and a lot oh, really? of troops died. Yeah, yeah. And they, they were fighting in France um, and, uh, you know, all over um, but yeah, that's um, it. Not as involved mm -hmm. as we got when we were in World War Two. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was enough, and a lot of soldiers saw a lot of action over there. So, you know, a lot of times when I'm running the games, a lot of the players are you know veterans from World War One who saw too much. You oh, know, wow. and, and it's not uncommon for us to uh, pu push into the game that uh, the Germans used. Um, you know, mythos creatures on their side to help the, help them out, right? And that's yeah. why they did as well as they did against everybody else. You know, um, so it's um, but yeah, it was a it was a fun time. It was a free time where where women were really starting to show they were liberated mm -hmm. and didn't have to stay at home. Um, you know, because that was really the first time women entered the workforce was in World War One, when a lot of the men, you know, joined the military and went overseas. Okay. So, um, you know, again, World War Two, it was a bigger time, but mm -hmm. World War One was like a step that in that direction, and and to them, it was the war to end all wars. Yeah, and we won, and so you know, you know, let's party and. Uh, and they did a lot, <laughs> so. but but that mentality of let's party. There's such a just a position of okay, we're extremely liberal in that area, right? In that era, at the same time, alcohol is illegal. How does that compute? I mean, this is like the eye-opening era of of the country, and then you're yeah. you're, you're keeping them from celebrating. How does that work? 
Well, I, I think they celebrated a bit too much. And then, yeah. like I said, women for the first time had a real voice and mm-hmm. they made it made it be heard. And they were the uh, the big proponents of uh, the. Uh, uh, oh, geez, mine just went blank. Sorry. No, <laughs> Prohibition mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, banning the alcohol. And so, you know, they got it pushed through and. Um, which really it kind of surprises me when i look back through history that that happened but um you know they they managed to get it done and then it didn't take long for everybody to realize what a mistake it was but um but what it did was it just kind of made it a little more dangerous to do that sort of thing you know what i'm saying it still happened everywhere there were speakeasies all over the place Mm -hmm. there was you know illegal you know uh alcohol being smuggled in from everywhere from canada to puerto rico to people making it themselves and it was um you know it it was a a a wild time like i said so you know this is when the tommy guns were going around and you had the gangsters and it it was an interesting time uh dangerous i would say you know to live in but uh uh, and the government was just kind of feeling its power for the first time right Mm -hmm. so you have the fbi going around uh, trying to control things, and so it really opens it up for the storytelling because you never know what's going to happen. You know, there could be uh, some military, you know, secret military st- uh, experimentation going on, and and things of this nature, and it it really opens up the whole world to you for for doing this uh, that kind of thing. So yeah, that, that period yeah. of time is really interesting to me from that point of view. In a way, I think that I don't know if I'm wrong in assuming this, but. I, I get the feeling that the 20s were actually a more liberal time for the country than the 50s were. You know, I, I think so. Which well, is strange more to than me. The, the 50s. <laughs> yeah. And then in the, but you know, like most things, things run in cycles. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, ebbs and flows. So it was more liberal in the 20s, then it got very conservative in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Yeah. And then the 60s and 70s, it went back to being liberal again, and yeah. then you know 80s was conservative and it, it just kind of goes back and forth so that's that's not uncommon okay okay just just check in because i you know i think of when time moves forward you get more liberal but that's not always the case i mean if we think of the french revolution that's one of the most liberal times in history right uh, oh yeah and that was like yeah. in, was that 1789 or was, oh was i don't know i'm not a history major uh, <laughs> i think that's... it was 1789 when the french revolution happened but you know that's when people said the hell with religion you know yeah it's one of the most catholic countries in the world said the hell with religion you know <laughs> and and now you look you look back at france and there's plenty of people that are still you know diehard catholic oh yeah and, you know yeah uh, yeah, but they're actually getting more conservative right now. But yeah, 1789 yeah. to 1799, it was a 10 year span. So, yeah. uh, Captain Google to the rescue. Okay. There. All right. So. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, let me I mean, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and that's what's great about writing Cthulhu books at this time mm-hmm. is because there's so much information on the computers. <laughs> on your you know that you can go search and find um i joined facebook groups for uh bridgewater massachusetts while i was writing this book okay (laughs) okay and um um in one of the stories and i I don't give away too much here but uh because you you have the devil swamp right yes i have the devil swamp okay uh in one of them uh one of the places on there is the comfort bridge Mm -hmm. and the solitude stone and 
so I actually got a chance to chat with the mom of the Eagle Scout who took the Solitude Stone and made a park out. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, yeah, it, it's it's wow, you know fa- it's fascinating <laughs> that you can do that, and that's mm-hmm. not something you could have even done ten years ago. You yeah. know, that it's it's great stuff. So anyway, I you know encourage everybody who's you know sometimes i'll run modern day settings for call of cthulhu and i'm like yeah you got a cell phone use it man <laughs> yeah use everything you can to yeah so wow. that's uh you know but that's you know i've i've also played call of cthulhu in the future uh like out in space uh-huh. and um back in the roman times and that's what's great about call of cthulhu you can run it in any time period oh, we're yeah. talking about the 1920s and that's the the apex of the game but you know that's not uh, not what it's limited to you know there's so many places you can run it so yeah and I, I mean i've seen that movie event horizon and uh, also the Glo- the cloverfield movies which the third one kind of alludes to that kind of space kind of horror too and also video games like that space and things like that that are based oh yeah on kind of cthulian mythos things uh, apparently there's a lot of stuff that's tied to the cthulhu mythos oh yeah and a lot of times they don't even necessarily you know, state it right out that this mm-hmm. is Cthulhu mythos, but you know, I've seen a lot, you know, tons of movies and uh, you know, books I've read that I'm like, oh yeah, this is definitely very Cthulhuish. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's and but I think anytime you get into the strange or supernatural, you start walking down that, you know, as long as it's not just a straight, you know, yeah. vampire, werewolf, ghost type story, mm-hmm. then you start treading into that area where H.P. Lovecraft made his living, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. Let, let me ask you about your writing. Were you always a writer? Did you always enjoy oh. it? Uh, no, actually. Um, so I just, I created most of my own uh, stuff when I was running D&D. Mm-hmm. And I've actually only recently gotten into running Call of Cthulhu, uh-huh. probably in the last 10 years. Okay. So, uh, but I always wrote all my uh, D&D stuff and then kind of got out of doing role playing completely. Um, but I, I took some of my older modules and I uh, just put them together as a little book and, and sold them on eBay. And these were just, you know, sheets of paper folded in half stapled. I mean, they were very, very <laughs> low quality, you uh-huh. might say. And um, so... Um, uh, someone, uh, you know, I had people buy them, and mm-hmm. one of the per- uh, people who bought it was uh, a man by the name of uh, Doug Ray, who uh, runs uh, the North Texas RPG Con up here in Dallas. Okay. And uh, so he he sends he tracks me down and emails me and says, uh-huh. "Hey, listen, I'm starting this convention. Why don't you come run your module?" I bought it and I think it's great. Oh, cool. And I, and I was like, I already had something planned for that weekend that he had scheduled, and I told him I couldn't do it. Uh-huh. And he said, "Well, maybe next year." And I said, "I was like, yeah, yeah, sure." Anyway, <laughs> so he, he he calls me the next year and says, "Why don't you cover on your your game at my convention?" Yeah. And I'm like, you know, I haven't really played D and D in years. He's like, yeah, but it's like riding a bike, you know, just mm-hmm. run first edition like you always did. And so I said, okay. And so I show up and I run it and uh, everybody loves it. And uh, uh, and then that kind of got me into, you know, back into the role-playing spirit. And I started, 
you know, everybody was running D&D, and so I was trying to give people other options, and so I, you know, stumbled on Call of Cthulhu. I, you know, of course, I knew about it, and I'd read his books and stuff. Uh, I'd heard there was a game, but I hadn't really gotten into it. Uh-huh. So uh, I found the 6th edition rulebook, you know, it just come out, and so I got it, and uh, uh, ran some of the the adventures that were in the back of the book of that and then started writing my own from there and it's just taken off and you know I, i've done very well with uh you know uh with call of cthulhu i contacted chaosium and told them i wanted to do a book and they were yeah. all for it so you know it's um so how does that concrete. work are you working under the banner when you said you called chaosium i mean that they are you contract for them or what yeah, so I uh, I have a license with them. Uh-huh. Uh, that's why, you know, it has a logo on the front of the book saying Chaosium. So okay. it's licensed through them. So they have to approve everything I put out for that. Mm-hmm. And then um, uh, they keep it and archive it uh, so they can use it, you know, if they want to later on. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, because because some of my books I have actually created new mythos and new things uh-huh. uh, in the books and so that's a matter of fact I think I created two new gods in um, uh, your Devil Swamp book so uh, you know they they add stuff to every time people write stuff it's just adding more and more to the mythos so okay yeah and I think it's that's ever growing <laughs> universe it's great so yeah I love it I think that's awesome and tell me a little bit about New Comet Games. Is that your company, or do you work for them, or how's that relationship? <laughs> yeah, it, it's my company. I okay. founded them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so when I, I started getting serious about uh, doing Kickstarters, uh, mm-hmm. uh, some friends of mine had done a Kickstarter or two, and uh, uh, it was going great. And so what actually happened was I, I didn't start with role-playing mm-hmm. games uh, in my company. What I did was I... I run a Boy Scout troop also, and oh, okay. um, and one of the merit badges you can work on now is uh, one called game design. And so, <clears throat> as a troop, we were working on this, and I told all the boys, I said, "You're not doing a computer game. Everybody's going to make, you know, a card game, a uh, or a miniatures game, uh-huh. or a board game." And they said, "Okay, great. We will if you will." And oh. I said, "Okay." <laughs> so <laughs> I'm I made a game called Ultimate Dinosaur Fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, which pretty cool. <laughs> it, it's a, a tactical battle game using dinosaurs uh-huh. uh, as miniatures and uh, in a battle arena set in the future. So you have mutations and tech upgrades and things like that. And um, so I kind of did this up and brought it to a convention and, you know, people played it and everybody loved it. And, you know, everybody's telling me, you got to kickstart this, you got to kickstart it. So um, I did and it was successful right from the get go. And um, uh, and from there, then I started. You know, everybody's saying, "Well, now you got to produce your 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 modules and put them out there." And and so I've started doing that, and uh, it just exploded from there. And and we're having a great time. So, well, so is your dinosaur game available for sale at your site at New Comic Games? Well, actually, as it turns out, we sold out oh, of sold the game. Out? Oh, okay. uh, yeah, of the first run, mm-hmm. and uh, we have we're working on a second edition, which will be launching in about two months. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, and it's all new artwork, and it comes with an expansion and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's it's going to be great, and we're really looking forward to it. We think it's going to do great. So. Okay, and would you like to tell us the name of your website so people can go look at it? 
Oh, yeah. Well, right now I don't have any information on it, but you can go to my website. It's mm -hmm. newcometgames.com. Uh-huh. And uh, we have a store there that sells all of our stuff. So we have everything from D&D &D and Call of Cthulhu to uh, the new Top Secret. I don't know if you've heard yeah, of that one or not. I, I think we talked a little, a little bit about that. I was when kind of interested in that. When you hear the monster that. growl, you know yeah, it's Yeah, because that's a modern-day spy. Uh, you know, like your James Bond, uh, and yeah. it's a role-playing game. Um, it's put out by a group called TSR now. They took over the name after Wizards of the Coast let it go. Um, and uh, I love that game as well. And so I've put out the first two mission books for that game, so okay. we're pretty proud about that. Yeah, I see something and, called Arctic Blast. Did you write this one as well? Uh, I didn't write that one. I collaborated mm -hmm. and did uh, some editing on it, but okay. uh, a a uh, person that works with me named Gary Van uh, Bensinger, mm -hmm. he wrote it and okay. um, it did a fantastic job. Um, really proud of that one. That's Arctic Blast. I helped write uh, another one that we have called Deep Freeze, mm -hmm. Operation Deep Freeze, yeah. and Thunderclap. It's actually a two part. And uh, me and my daughter in law wrote the first half of that one, and then uh, another person wrote the second half of that one. So, oh, wow. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. It, yeah, I was trying to put everything together because we're trying to, you know, write this stuff, but you also get to get artwork and mm -hmm. cartographer to do the maps, and then you graphic artist to lay everything out. It, it can be quite a, there's a lot involved in put, uh, producing yeah. a book. Yeah, I was going to say, I, like, realize. Yeah, I like the art a lot, especially, can you tell me something about the star on the shore? Because I love, when I met you at the OwlCon, that's the book that grabbed my attention just because of the art that was sold on the on the cover of that book. Oh yeah, that's probably the best cover I've ever <laughs> that I ever had done. Yeah. I love that cover. And, and a funny story about that is the artist doesn't like that cover. Really? Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. There's there's uh, after after we did it, and mm -hmm. I was almost done with the book, and he was still doing some artwork for me. He's like, I don't like that cover. I want to redo it. And I said, Well, you can redo it, but I I'm not going to promise I'll switch it. And so there's another piece in there that's a little brighter mm -hmm. that shows the tentacles coming out of the water around the two lighthouses. Yeah. Um, he wanted that to be the cover. And uh, while I love that piece as well, I think I used it for the cover of the calendar I did. Um, I, I kept with the, the double lighthouses, the dark double lighthouses yeah. on the star on the shore. I, I just love that cover too much. Um, that, this is very, it, very evocative to me. I just, I get drawn to that stuff. It's really. Oh nice. yeah. Uh, so I, you, I love how. Yeah. I saw your name is all over this thing. So you wrote this whole. What it's not a. It's kind of like a setting, right? It's not an adventure per se. The star on the shore. It, it is an adventure, but it's a mm -hmm. sandbox type adventure. So instead of being like on Devil Swamp, there's eight smaller adventures for you to go into. Mm -hmm. And then it's all set in that Bridgewater uh, area with uh, the Hakamok Swamp. Yeah. This is set in one city. Um, I guess we can say it now. It's a couple of years old now. So yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. It's in <laughs> Rockport, Massachusetts, uh -huh. uh, which is about the only... Uh, and it does have the double lighthouses, just like shown on the uh, oh, on the front that. cover. Oh. Yeah, that's almost. Uh, uh, it, yeah, matter of fact, I showed that cover art 
out on my uh, website and mm -hmm. said, hey, what do y'all think of this cover art? Mm -hmm. And somebody said, oh, I love it. It's awesome, except it's not very realistic having two lighthouses that close together. And so then I sent up an actual photo mm -hmm. of the two lighthouses. Well, the two lighthouses. <laughs> it's well, almost identical. <laughs> seeing how treacherous that terrain is, I bet you those yeah. are warranted. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's... Um, but it's it's designed to be like a north south to help the uh, sailors orient mm -hmm. themselves on which way is north and yeah, south. It looks like a lot of people uh, died around that area. From <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you've been they, in the navy. I guess you could <laughs> relate to that. That's insane, right there. Yeah, that's pretty insane. But uh, so, uh, but yeah, it's uh, the the uh, characters. You know, the investigators are hunting for a stolen statue and they get the clues to go to Rockport but when they get there they know nothing about the city um, and they just have to figure out what's going on and uh, one of the neat things I did in that book was all the NPCs in there and there's dozens of them mm -hmm. uh, they're all color coded and so you, they're either uh, green if they'll be friendly with you and help you or orange if they're uh, are against you okay. and then if they're yellow, then it depends on how you interact with that NPC on whether he's going to turn against you or help you. Oh, wow. So, uh, but yeah, and it's, uh, but things are happening behind the scenes all the time. There's a timeline that keeps moving forward, and NPCs are doing stuff in the background. It's not just the static setting, and the players can take, you know, all the time in the world to figure out what's going on things are moving and they need to keep up with them and stay ahead of the game or they'll just get caught up in it so it, oh, wow. it's but it, it's that's a lot of fun yeah it's a lot of work to, to run something like that because <laughs> i don't recommend that one for first time keepers because but i think it's a great great adventure Cause, so i mean i i just i don't know that that's the stuff that kind of calls to me so and i'm not afraid yeah. of doing a little bit of homework yeah so, it uh, does require a little bit of work just yeah. to become familiar with the city and stuff like that so mm -hmm. um now i do want to uh let me throw out there that star on the shore was a finalist uh last year for the three castles rpg award so that's kind of neat uh, it didn't win, but it was a finalist. Yeah, and I saw that, that was in the cover or something. There was a little tag on the on the product there. That's what yeah. that was. Yeah. Well, and then that's awesome. And uh, Devil Swamp is a finalist this year. So, oh wow! Uh, I'll find out in June if I win or not. So and guess what? I have a signed copy of that book, so. <laughs> <laughs> which I will never sell. <laughs> well, there you go. So, Thank you. Um, <laughs> But anyway, tell me a little bit about the Devil Swamp. This is, and, and I don't mean spoilers. I just uh, because I was reading up a little bit, and this is a real swamp that used to be like an Indian uh, territory where they got displaced, and it was also kind of a burial ground. Is that true? Uh, well, it, it, the Indians uh, revered the swamp, mm -hmm. uh, and they lived next to it and near it, and they used it for a lot of things. Um, but the name of it is called the Hockamock. Okay. Uh, it's a real swamp in Massachusetts. Uh, Hockamock is the Indian word for where the spirits dwell, okay. is what it actually stands for. Uh, when the colonists moved there, they'd never seen anything like this, and they called it the Devil's Swamp, which is where I get the name of the book. Uh, where the Spirits Dwell, I use as one of the titles for the one of the missions inside the book. So what I've done is built up uh, the city of Bridgewater, mm -hmm. uh, and then um, uh, 
the the swamp itself i have locations placed in there of where all the different adventures take place and that's on the keepers map but uh, um the idea behind it is you can use them as one-offs you can try to string them together as one big campaign you have to change the dates a little bit they don't quite line up properly you know um but um and I created a, a group called the Bridgewater Preservation Society, mm -hmm. which was originally designed to um, disprove all the horrible things that people say about the Devil Swamp. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. anyway, uh, and then the, <laughs> the player characters are members of this. And mm. now not every adventure takes advantage of that. Yeah. I had three guest writers write for me uh -huh. they were those were stretch goals that we hit in the book because the book did extremely well on kickstarter and um so i i brought in three other writers to help write uh that for me and uh they did you know they did great work for me but they didn't use everything i had in place you know so they're kind of off on their own but uh, they still work you know and you can make them work so okay wow that sounds awesome yeah, I, I love it. I think it's it's one of the best works I've ever done. Uh, really proud of it, and um, you know, I got high hopes for this year okay. that I'll actually win. So we'll see. <laughs> Are you gonna put a notice on your website? Oh yeah. If and yeah. when you win, um, or oh yeah, you'll you'll see pictures of me with the trophy and okay. everything. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> but but we'll we'll have to you know temper my for my excitement yeah. like i'm going to get some very tough competition uh mutant uh mutant crawl classics is in the finals mm -hmm. uh the rule book for that and as well as a uh, space opera uh rule set and so it, it's it's very tough competition so we'll see okay now that you mentioned the word mutant i was just thinking about my logo the mutant donkey logo oh, and yeah. how it, it's subconsciously a cthulhu mythos logo uh, because yeah. it's like a regular donkey, but he's mutant, and there's like tentacles under the water. Oh, above the water, it looks like a regular donkey, and then under the water, you can see that there's something different. And I, oh yeah, I never consciously <laughs> thought about it that way, but it is a Cthulhu. It's a Cthulhu oh, yeah. mythos icon. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, so tell me about the conventions. What conventions can people find you at? Uh, so I do a lot of ones in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, Alcon I do on a regular basis. Uh, North Texas RPG Con I do every year. Um, uh, this will be the second year I'll be at Chupacabra Con in uh, Austin. In Austin? Is that next to the Chupacabra Mexican restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I've been to that restaurant. It's really nice. <laughs> um, I'm going to be a special guest at the Red River Con uh -huh. in uh, Shreveport here in oh, a couple okay. of weeks. Cool. And then uh, I also make it up to uh, Wichita, Kansas, to their Tsunami Con there. Oh, okay. And then I uh, also hit Gary Con, and then I'm going to Game Hole Con as well this year. So Okay, wow, that's a lot. And yeah. Th just for my personal reference, the North Texas Con, what is that? Uh, North Texas RPG Con. It's mm -hmm. in Dallas every year. Uh -huh. And uh, it's, um, it actually does more old-school role-playing. Uh, so you see a lot more like... Um, uh, basic D&D, &D, uh, first edition, second edition D&D, &D, stuff like that. They still have some of the other fifth edition. Okay. Um, I run a, uh, usually run a Paranoia game every year and a Call of Cthulhu game every year. Uh, and so you get, a, you get a wide variety of different games there. Uh, okay. But uh, they bring down some of the big old school names. Uh, you know, uh, it's not uncommon for you to sit down and have a beer with Errol Otis or to, you know, be talking with Tim Cask about old stuff at, you know, uh, from TSR. Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the most relaxed 
uh, environments for interacting with special guests I have ever seen in my life. Oh, you know, like fun. Maybe I'll make it yeah. up there and play some Cthulhu with you. Oh, it is awesome. I highly recommend it to anybody. It's yeah. it's pretty exclusive. You know, they only do about three to 400 people there, mm-hmm. and they'll have 20 special guests. Uh, the guy who puts oh, that wow. on, Doug, is so fantastic, but he loses his shirt every year on that thing, and he doesn't care. He's, <laughs> he loves doing it, and he loves bringing in all these big names, you know, uh, and... Uh, and it's great, you know. I had Zeb Cook sit in on a, a paranoia game I was running one time, you know, because he wasn't doing anything. And it was just, you know, that's the kind of stuff. I was sitting there telling the story to a friend of mine yeah. about um, Errol Otis and how I bailed on one of his games one year to go play Call of Cthulhu with Sandy Peterson. <laughs> I mean, and I felt so bad about it that I thought I could never sign up for another Errol Otis game. And then I hear somebody behind me say it's okay ben you can sign up and i turn around and there's Errol lotus laughing about the oh. story <laughs> i mean that's just that's the kind of con it is it's that fantastic so anyway but yeah i'm there every year so what time of the year did you say that was it's first week uh first weekend in june every year so. first weekend in june. okay perfect all right and i think i think that's about all the time i have today i think let me see we've been on what like 40 minutes or so yeah, I, I need to go okay. too. So, yeah. so I guess we can call it there. But I really appreciate you, Ben. Uh, you know, coming and, and talking to me. Um, Not a problem. You know, really enjoyed it. Mute donkey podcast news. So now we can start with the news. So do you guys have the notes on the news? Uh, I do. And I know Candyman's going to want to speak up for the first item on the news, right? Yeah. Yeah. Candyman, take it away, man. I know you're itching to like. Terrence somebody believe it or not actually um, things are if you can believe it there's actually some item well at least one item that's not on the news here that that's new okay go ahead um, basically one of the so 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 the problem we've got right now is um, exclusivity and what's really going on and this isn't and unfortunately this isn't even just gaming it, it's almost a cultural thing at this point. Um, everything's getting really heavily fragmented. Everybody wants to have their own service. Basically, in, in a lot of ways, they're trying to. Everyone's trying to cut out the middleman. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to to have anyone getting a cut of their, of, you know, of the pie. So, and this has been happening for a while, even with between other vendors like Netflix. You know, took their stuff off Apple. You know, and people are taking their stuff like uh, Epic Games took uh, Fortnite, you know, off the Epic or off the Google Play Store and off the Apple Store and stuff, you know, to put it on their own website. Mm -hmm. So you got a lot of stuff going on financially where people just don't want to share. And to some degree, that makes financial sense. But the problem is, and the same thing's happening with streaming services. Disney Plus just uh, got announced a few days ago Mm -hmm. um, at a very aggressive price point, which will probably be good for the consumers in the short term at least. Yeah, it's like four but bucks or five bucks. I, I was surprised at how low it was. It's six ninety nine or okay. sixty nine ninety nine a year, which okay. which is a phenomenal value, except that and so of course the, the reason I bring it up is to tell you why I don't know that it's a great I mean, so of course, especially you know, everyone in the world's like, I'm a parent, I'm buying it. You know? Mm-hmm. Like it's just you know, it's like for the amount of you know, getting my kids off my back 
it's a, it's a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but the problem we've got with both the streaming services and uh, games is that it's getting fragmented, uh, and everyone's pulling their content, pulling their games. You know, everybody wants to have their own platform. Yeah. And the yeah. problem is that it's getting to the point where it's going to be... It's like cable TV, except it's an even bigger hassle. Because now, at least with cable TV, it was a pain in the ass. But at least you could, you know, you could get a bundle. You could basically tell the cable company, like, you know, give me all the channels. And, mm-hmm. and it would cost a bunch of money, but you could do it. Yeah. Now you've got to manage, you know, 20... Subs- you know, oh, wait, you want to watch The Twilight Zone? You've got to get CBS All Access. And, oh, you want to watch, you know, Marvel movies? Oh, you've got to get Disney Plus. And, you know, oh, you want to watch UFC fights? You've got to get ESPN Plus. And, you know, oh, you want to watch Stranger Things? You need Netflix, you know, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's got their own thing. And what and what I think it's going to do, and, and like I said, everyone's got exclusives because they're ultimately, everyone's kind of thinking, it's like, well... If I don't have that one, you know, killer thing like Game of Thrones, you know, like Game of Thrones premieres tonight, everyone's going to be, you know, everyone's going to be re-upping their, their HBO Go. Mm-hmm. So, but so the problem is it's fragmenting the market and what I, I really think is happening and to be honest with you, you know, it's even even happened in my case. I mean, I can honestly tell you that I haven't downloaded anything off of, you know, uh, torrents, uh-huh. you know, since I was uh-huh. in my 20s. Yeah. I'm in my 40s yeah. now and I've... You know, I've resumed because I'm not going to sign up for you know CBS All Access to get one show. I'm just not. I'm not going to. I'm not. It's not worth my time. Mm-hmm. And and so what they're doing is yes, they're they're pulling a lot of exclusivity stuff, but I think they're pushing people to piracy, and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I really do. So do you, so do you think, think that's, that's going to force them to deal with each other again, again to like start, start buying each other's programming and showing it everywhere? Or? Yeah, I don't know what the solution is. I think it's. I do think it's a tough problem. I mean, to some degree, and, and this is what's terrible because some people have said. So there's the solution. People, there's two. There's kind of a, a constant argument that goes on there. Uh, one argument is, uh, well, well, clearly we need another, ta- you know, a cable TV company to basically bundle all this stuff together uh-huh. so that we can, so that we don't have to have. You know, twenty-seven subscriptions. Be like an internet, internet company now, now like, like consolidating all the services into one. And they just charge you once, and then you get all this little internet channel. Exactly. Right? But then people go, but that's what the you know, that's what you know. Everyone's like, but we just fired the cable TV companies. We don't want to do that. But for you someone like fire them, them. They're, they're, they're everywhere. They will come chasing you. Yeah. <laughs> Through time, time and space, space like, like Lovecraft Beasts, they, they will come chasing you. But for someone like me, like I don't want to individually manage it. You know, like. For me, you know, I'm not going to have that many services because I don't want to keep track of that many passwords. You know, I, I honestly almost think we're to the point where it'd be better off if there was, you know, a service where you could manage it. But but especially Epic Games, the, the problem is especially Epic Games is actually, so just to tie it back to what you were talking about, so all this exclusivity stuff, you know, as a consumer, it sucks because it just makes our lives a headache because mm-hmm. now you've got to remember 87 different passwords. Yeah. If for no other reason than that, it's a hassle. Yeah. yeah. But then what Epic Games is doing is even actually worse because, so most of the time these these studios are like, well, this is our product, you know, like this is the show or this is whatever it is we made, and you're going to have to come to us for it. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing. What Epic Games is doing is far worse. Epic Games is literally going to everyone on the planet and basically saying, you know, oh, you've made a game, we'll give you a big chunk of our Fortnite money to make it so that it only sells in our store. Yeah. yeah. And so they're they're taking independent people and basically bribing them 
to to give them one year exclusive access to the content. But you're writing them after they have already announced that their games are going to be available on Steam. And they, they, then go, they go back on their words, even though that was part of their Kickstarter. And I bought a bunch of people that donated money were expecting this game to come to Steam. And now they're going back on their words and saying, whoops, it's not going to come to Steam. What do you people give us money for the game to come to Steam? Sorry, it's going to Epic. Exactly, exactly. And it's even worse because, like, it. well, not, I mean, honestly, the worst of the worst are the people who did Kickstarters who, who, and in fact, this is the other, this is the big thing, too. So a lot of these people kickstarted the games because, one, they were going to get it on Steam, and two, many of the people that kickstarted it wanted to play it on Linux or other operating systems, and Epic doesn't support any of that. You know, mm -hmm. there is no big picture, there is no <laughs> Linux support, there's no, you know, all these things that, I mean, people wouldn't have donated their money, you know, now that it's like the games have basically been changed to be Windows only, and the people are like, well, I wouldn't have donated my money. Mm-hmm. The Kickstarter. If I if I knew I wasn't going to get a game I could play, yeah, it's it's really scummy, and it's it's you know it's not fair to those people. And then especially these people like the Kickstarters. I mean, it's it's really offensive, anyways, because these Kickstarter people are saying, "Well, Epic gave us so much money for the for the exclusivity contract that we didn't even now we could just refund all the Kickstarter money." Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you know that whole that whole that whole situation is is crummy and and the other thing i was thinking about by the way people are acting like epic you know it's like they're great humanitarians yeah, you know it's like they're they only charge like a 12 percent take <laughs> of this you know steam charges 20 or i'm sorry steam charges 30 percent up front and then after a certain amount like 20 million or something they they only charge 20 percent mm -hmm. um epic games only charges 12 percent people go yeah you know epic epic games is great you know they're giving more money back to the developers and and I, and I really think that's disingenuous because, quite frankly, the only reason they're charging 12% is that's all they can, that's all people would pay them for what they're offering because they're not offering anything. All, they're, all they have is a, basically a web page with little boxes where you can click a game, pay for it, and download it. There's no reviews, there's no forums, there's no support, there's no other, you know, other operating system support or online saves or friend you know there's 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 practically it, it's it's basically as bare i mean like there's no game reviews you can't even look at like a game review mm -hmm. so it's such a it's so bereft of value i mean it's not they're not great humanitarians they're just people aren't going to give you anymore for you're not doing enough you're not yeah. earning it well not only that but they're shopping taking... cards Wait, go ahead what they don't even have shopping carts. oh they don't so how do you bundle no. do you have to make each purchase separately then yep oh well, that, that I don't like. Well, I think they're disrespe disrespecting consumers in a unique way, which is they're taking choice away from us. Because people are saying, oh, why are you guys complaining? You can still buy the game. I'm like, yes, but consumers like to have choice of where to go and where to get their things. The second that somebody takes that choice away, consumers get mad. And like Candyman was saying, some of those consumers are going to resort to piracy because they are not going to want to wait six months to play a game they've been waiting years for, like Borderlands 3, and you know how come other people are playing it and epic is making it so we can't play it on day one and i'm personally mad about it i'm not going to pirate anything i'm just going to wait six months but i'm going to be mad i'm going to disappoint it because i don't want to use epic because i don't trust epic and i want to use the platforms that i trust and that i like ultimately as a consumer that's my decision and when you take my decision away you get the repercussion of i'm not going to buy stuff from you and i think more than enough people feel about feel that way about it i think um, but anyway that's that's the way it's happening i don't know i i know that epic is not going to be successful in my heart of hearts i don't believe they're going to be successful with this angle at some point they're going to realize oh 
people are just not buying our stuff and they're waiting or they're pirating things and, and they're gonna go back to Steam. They're, we're gonna push them back into Steam again. So, but anyway, I will we'll, say so the the other I. <coughs> It's not on the news list, but the other item of news that I did want to bring up, because this is relatively fresh, mm -hmm. like in the last day or so, Apple has now come out and saying they're they're going to do a thing called Apple Arcade, and they're paying they're putting down about half a billion dollars to buy games, okay. and surprise surprise, they have already said that they're offering a incentive to go exclusive to the Apple service. So mm -hmm. now Apple's doing the same shit. But not only that, but who the hell plays a computer game on an Apple? I mean, first of all, they're overpriced and underpowered. Um, and there's not a lot of games available for Apple compared to PC. So why? Why, why reduce you know, your choices that way? That seems dumb to me. Unless they start making computers, better computers. I don't know. It's probably a bit more on the mobile side of games, although mm -hmm. there's been a lot of regular games that have been ported. You know, there's games that have been ported both ways. There's been a few mobile games that have been ported to PC, and there's a decent number of PC games that have been ported to mobile. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I'm, I don't think we are the mobile crowd. We're the... Nope. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if there's a true mobile game that doesn't try to milk you at every turn, then I'm, I'm okay with that. But in general, I don't, that's why I don't do mobile games. Because I don't, I don't want to do microtransactions. Yeah. Well, they, so the Apple thing, for what it's worth, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a, fa you know, I'm, I'm not a fanboy, but um, they said it was going to be, I think it was going to be like nine ninety nine a month, and all of the games will be included in Apple service. And I will say the, the, the good side of it is there, all the games will not have. Basically, it's, it's all inclusive. So if you do pay the, the subscription fee for the Apple game service, mm -hmm. uh, no microtransactions. It's all. You, you know, you, you pay the money, you get the game. There's no bullshit. So at least that's, that's you know. Okay. I hate exclusivity stuff. It's very offensive to me. But at least that part is, you know, okay. makes sense. And talking about the Borderlands 3 announcement, uh, I don't know if you guys watched the ceremony, but something went horribly wrong and their trailer didn't want to play. And it was, like, very, it was, like, crashing. Until the guy that was presenting got mad at the people backstage and said, no, we're going to sit here until this plays correctly because we worked... A hell of a long time on this game and I want this trailer to play the guy got pissed like you could tell like he wasn't having any of it you know this is not gonna happen we're gonna wait here we're gonna extend the show until the tech people backstage figure out what to do and how to play this trailer correctly and they did and they did and they worked so anyway I'm extremely excited about Borderlands 3 so I'm looking forward for anybody who wants an extra shift code the shift code from that ceremony for Borderlands 2 shift code is a little code you put in there and it gives you like rewards little coin things it's WSGST. That was a shift code that was announced during the presentation. In case anybody still plays Borderlands 2, I know Ethan Cito just bought the Borderlands package, right? Yep. And so you're playing Borderlands 1 right now, and that comes with Borderlands 2. It comes from Tales from the Borderlands as well, does it? or No, uh, no it's the Handsome Jack collection. Oh, okay. That's on sale right now, which includes the pre-sequel and Borderlands 2. But then they also dropped the Borderlands Game of the Year Enhanced Edition, oh, where cool. they, yeah, they redid the textures, and they also added in the mini-map from Borderlands 2 into Borderlands 1. Okay. Alright. Well, I want to switch next to a topic that has been kind of under the radar, that I think is very important, and that's Article 13, which passed in the EU at the beginning of the month, I think. And it's going to be effective in 2021. 
Now this is extremely harsh copyright laws for YouTubers and streamers. Now this is in the EU, so we're thinking, well, this doesn't affect us at all. Well, it does because a lot of the people that watch your content are also in Europe. And guess what? If you mention something that may be copyrighted, not only can you get sued for it, but YouTube can get sued, sued for it. Twitch can get sued for it. Uh, whatever platform that you use to stream or to say can now be sued for every little infraction. So they're going to have to make like very, mm, they have to micromanage everybody to the extreme to where you're going to get denied your videos right away until that you can prove in writing that you're not violating any copyright laws. And that is going to slow people down. Not myself personally, because I don't, I'm not a Twitch streamer, but there's a lot of Twitch streamers that are going to be very mad about this thing. And it's going to pass, it's going to be effective in 2021. And this is going to affect. Uh, yeah, I've heard a lot of bad things about this. The, basically, a lot of people are saying, you know, a lot of the European people are saying that they, you know, of course, who knows if this is going to happen because we do the same thing, but mm -hmm. they're saying that you need to vote their their representatives out that they've sold out to the you know to the industry basically that they've that they've betrayed their constituents which in my opinion they completely have now the question is will they pay the price and that's you know that's a much harder question to answer. yeah what i don't understand is why the companies would want this to happen because streaming is one of the biggest ways for them to get publicity mm -hmm. well it's not the uh the game manufacturers that are necessarily doing it it's uh a lot of times it would be, you know, even something like YouTube, where it's it's a question of the more that they can demonetize. You know, they're still going to show ads in a demonetized video, but mm -hmm. if they don't have to give it to the creator, the content creator, then they get to keep it themselves. And yeah, it's like what they tried to do to Star Wars Theory when Lucasfilm or whatever, whatever they, they were claiming a copyright violation on the music that was kind of similar. And they wanted to monetize his video, and so they wanted to take his video away from him in a way and make money off of it. So. Right. I mean, that's that's a big chunk of how they make their funding. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I guess a lot of YouTubers will be mad about that, but I don't know. At some point, maybe getting a real job is not a bad thing. I don't know. <laughs> when you realize that most of your money is coming from the kids of people that break their back working, right? And then they, a lot of you, I get mad at some of the YouTubers because they're saying, oh, we're so cool. We're making all this money and we don't have to leave the house. And everybody else is a loser because they have to have real jobs. I'm like, dude, you realize that people with the real jobs are paying your ticket, right? Your meal ticket. So insulting them may not be the smartest thing. So if you're a YouTuber and you think you're the shit, well, come down to earth, man. Because one day you may find yourself having to work at a real office. And I pity you. I pity somebody who has no skills, you know, to make it in the real world. So there, that's my two cents on that matter. Because there's too many small YouTubers out there. I'm sorry, but there are. And they just, you know, every once in a while, they run me the wrong way. Um, anyway, I was looking at articles on GameSpot the other day, and I realized every single ad banner was a U.S. Army ad banner. And I bring this up because at a conversation somewhere, somebody had mentioned that the U.S. Army is at a record low of people signing up for the Army. And so I think they're identifying that... There's a lot of gamers that are really lazy, don't want to do anything, that they don't want to sign up to defend their country, and that, God forbid, they reinstitute the draft, you know, because people are not volunteering to serve their country. I don't know. You guys have any well, opinion about this? The Army's been having a lot of trouble with uh, recruitment for a while, because as it turns out... People don't want to die. <laughs> well, and there's... Yeah, there's a war fatigue. We've... You know, since World War II, you got the Japanese that bombed Pearl Harbor. Everybody gets super patriotic, and they all volunteer. 
very minimal draft uh, during World War II. And in fact, those that were drafted were often looked down on. Mm-hmm. Um, then you've got the Korean War. And all of a sudden, it's this kind of amorphous, so it's communism that's bad. And oh, the Chinese are communists, so we've got to help. And ever since then, war has been this, this sort of unending thing. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're not... F- we're not fighting for American freedom. We're not fighting for a grander global, you know, unity. It really is sort of this disingenuous, well, our gas prices are going to go up and we like having that. So let's go deal with this. Or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, these, the, these people flew into a, flew into our buildings and now we've, you know, what do we do about that? Well, let's go overthrow two governments and now we're never going to be able to leave there because we've got to help keep our governments, which, by the way, our country has never successfully uh, installed a government after basically any war. Um, We now have to foot the bill for it. And Mm -hmm. you've got a lot of these, you know, young men and women that are like, you know, I've got enough on my plate already. I've got to figure out if I'm going to do college or if I'm going to go into the workforce, I got to figure out how I'm going to feed, you know, to, to build a life. Yeah. And the military is just not the avenue for a great many of them. Um, 15 years ago when I started teaching, you know, every class I'd have, and I'd ask, what are you guys doing after high school? You got three to five people saying I'm going into the military. And I think in the last two years, I've had one kid that's, that's kicking it around. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're they're really hurting for nothing. It's a more a question of it's not a question of, of gamers being too lazy to do anything. It's a question of, you know, they don't see any reason to go out and fight these to fight these wars and potentially die or be made. And I, I don't think it helps either, quite frankly, that you know, I think there's I think there's probably some stigmas. I mean, knowing what I know now, I think I would well, first of all, one of the things I read that's interesting is apparently the the percentage of people who are like meet the standards mm-hmm. between like uh, you know especially with the drug laws and nonsense like that you know people who smoke marijuana this that the other um, you know people with physical fitness weight whatever you know there's all like only thirty percent of you know people that age are even qualified to to enlist. Well, it's kind of scary what you just said. Yeah, but then when you look well, especially like I said, a lot of it's stupid stuff like drugs. I mean, if yeah. they would you know if they legalize you know soft drugs they, mm-hmm. they would probably have a lot more people too but but on top of that i mean just from my perspective now that i know what i know quite frankly first of all there's a lot of mental illness mm-hmm. that, that comes from being in the military there's a lot of suicides there's a lot of mental illness and then secondly if you look at the 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 support that the veterans are given now, mm-hmm. especially with regards to the VA system, the hospitals and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you look at that and you hear about these stories, you know, people like losing a hand and they give them a, you know, a retirement with like a, you know, a 10% pen, you know, it's like they might have lost the major use of their hand, but they get like a 10% pension or something. It's like, you just look at how they, I don't feel like they have your back. Yeah, like you're trying to do you're it. Well, I guess that all started kind of with the Vietnam War, right? Like how they treated the vet, the, the Vietnam. I know that's a highly controversial issue, but, you know, the way they kind of treated the, the veterans, you know, the people that were just kind of doing what the country asked of them to do and how people, their own, own compatriots, when they came back home, didn't like him when they were throwing crap at them. And uh, and how, you know, they're, they, they, they're not mentally stable, you know, and they had to live their rest of their lives with those maladies. And I don't think that's fair. Yeah. 
I don't know. Now, those people were drafted. So, but anyway. Yeah. That's uh, maybe a topic for another time. That's a kind of heavy topic, but <laughs> I didn't yeah, want to take us there, but you know. Anyway, um, so let's go lighter. Are you guys excited that Warcraft 1 or 2 are available in good old games? I'm always excited about any news coming out of good old games. You, you cut up for a second. Oh, I said I'm always excited about any any news coming out of good old games. Uh, that's a really fun site. and Yeah, the old Warcraft games were an absolute kick. I remember playing those back in the 90s and uh, setting up LAN parties where we would actually run telephone cords for, uh, <laughs> between between our, our dorm rooms so we could play against each other. So do you think that's going to have uh, internet support then? Are you going to be able to play multiplayer online, those old games? Oh, I really hope so. Because, wow, what a fun what a fun afternoon that would be. That's awesome. So we got Warcraft 1 and 2 on good old games. We also have Diablo 1 on good old games. And then we have the remake of the Frozen Throne coming to Blizzard, right? Uh, I don't know if it's this year, hopefully. I don't know. That one I hadn't heard about. Uh, yeah, yeah. We talked about it in one of the other podcasts, the one that you weren't in. But there was um, the, the Blizzard announced. What they were doing, their big announcement where they said there was a Diablo mobile game that... The earlier part of that announcement was that oh, there was right, a, because don't you have phones? Exactly. Right before they said that, they had announced uh, Warcraft 3 uh, re remaster, basically. So. Yeah, I think uh, I think Blizzard. I recall, anyways. You know, I could completely be off my rocker here, but I recall. I think Blizzard didn't Blizzard. I think if you use the Battle.net launcher, I think like the original StarCraft, you can play for free on Battle.net yes. now. Yes, and the other one, the, the Battle Brood Wars, I think you can play Brood yeah. Wars for free. Also. So, so that's pretty cool. But just this is just this is totally tangential. But mm -hmm. I thought I'd throw this out here. Um, so, and I, I mean, I loved Warcraft. I loved Diablo. Mm -hmm. um, there's a game called Grim Dawn, and Grim Dawn is basically a I would consider it to be like a modern Diablo. Isn't that it, like it's a, a Warhammer really, game? What's that? Isn't that a Warhammer game, maybe? Or no, it's an, it's an action role-playing game. I mean, it's kind of... It's definitely not Warhammer. I mean, it's kind of set... It's kind of just, you know, fantasy. Okay. But it's an ARPG, and it's really surprisingly very solid. I mean, if you liked... You know, kind of like Diablo 2. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of got the same. It's kind of got randomly rolled items and, you know, make your character, you know, skill trees and characters and items and stuff. And it's just, it's like a very modern Diablo. Different, but, you know, it's not, I mean, it doesn't have like the Blizzard style. You know, it's the creatures and stuff are, are not, of course, Blizzard style and, and animations and stuff. But yeah. it's a very good game. It, it's def it's a completely different, but but quite good uh, ARPG. I, I'd recommend it. You can get it. There's a couple expansions now. Uh -huh. So the uh -huh. base game, you can get it like on sale for like just a couple of bucks. So it's, it's totally worth it. But there was also a new Warhammer game that hasn't come out yet that's about to drop that was in the style of. Chaos Bane, coming soon, uh, June 4th. Have you guys looked at Chaos Bane? No, I haven't. Yeah. That looks like an awesome Diablo-like uh, with, with, you know, with the, with the Warhammer characters and the elf and the dwarf, and, you know, kind of like Vermintide. Uh, talking about Vermintide, I think you and I own Vermintide too. And I think Kenny yes. does too, so we need to get on there at some point and play that. Because I heard that that's a lot... Oh, you you played it. You talked about it on the first podcast. I did. I, was, I really yeah. enjoy that game. I've been having a lot of fun with it. So we need to play that. And then if you want to join us at some point for Monster Hunter, you're welcome to. 
which I saw you purchased because I've been stalking you on Steam. So, well, yeah, no, it's just every <laughs> time I would come on, you and Andy and you know everybody else is playing. It, I'm like, well, why didn't I get the invite? Yeah, sorry about that. But anytime you guys want to play, I like when I'm playing. I'm always going to be on the Mean Donkey Discord. So if you guys look at look look me up, I'll be there playing that. So, Excellent. The other game that's been taken the internet by storm is Sekiro Shadows Eye Twice, which is kind of like Dark Souls. And every every like Twitch streamer has been on this thing for like a month or however long since this game came out, and apparently it's really good. And there's some people complaining that it's really hard, but then again, it's Dark Souls like, right? So it's supposed to be really hard. So from my point of view, I don't think Candyman would like it. So you know, I don't really play games to rage quit, <laughs> and there's a couple of games where I get it if if you can do it and the challenge is there and you really. You enjoy that kind of intense experience, then go for it. But honestly, I just, if everybody's like, oh, you're going to hate this game, I'm like, okay. Yeah, I am. <laughs> and then I just don't do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit masochistic, so I, I may enjoy that game. Uh, there's a couple. What's that? Oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say, no, I've heard, I've heard it's very good. I mean, to some degree, I'm, in, you know, I'm a little more interested. Like, I've been, play, been playing Monster Hunter, and, you know, that game can be a little. A little punishing at times, but there is some satisfaction in, in you know, getting your ass kicked a handful of times and then coming back and you know putting the thing down. So I yeah. I do kind of get it a little more. Yeah, yeah. And actually, if you're in a group, then you yeah you know you come back together and you're all sharing that frustration. So you, it kind of builds upon you guys, and so you're like supporting each other. Okay, this time we're gonna take it down. It becomes into a really team effort, you know. And you can give each other support. I think it's a good group building activity, personally, playing Monster Hunter. Um, so, Candyman, do you want to talk about Kenshi for a little bit? Because I know Kenshi 2 was just announced, and I didn't realize that Kenshi 1 was now out of uh, early access, right? So. Yeah, um, it, um, honestly, it was. I really enjoyed that game. Um, it's really a wonderful game. I mean, you know, when we went to Belize, I was still hooked on it, and. Uh, I played it quite a bit while we were there. It's a super fun game. So basically, it's and it, it, it really scratches a couple of itches for me. One is so I love base building games. I mean, there's a literally like a Reddit subreddit called like base building games, and I just I love any game where I can build a base. Uh, you know, where you can like sit there like seven days to die. You know, where you can just sit there and build up a base. It's it's really a fun experience for me. But the second thing is, the game does a really magical job. Uh, basically encompassing it's probably the biggest game I've ever played that encompasses like the zero to hero thing so when you start out mm -hmm. you are utterly pathetic I mean so all the skills go to like a hundred yeah. you literally start with zeros I mean you are utterly <laughs> pathetic you basically you, you literally start the game off by basically getting you go basically fight and there's skills called like toughness and you literally go out and just unless unless you get like a bunch of guys unless it's like four on one you're probably gonna like lose any fight mm -hmm. but um, typically you get your ass kicked you just go out they like beat you up and then they typically like will take your stuff and, and leave you for dead and then you'll just like get up and you know bandage yourself and rest and uh, you know do that whole thing so basically you start off like you have no weapon skill no combat skills no offense, no defense, no toughness. Like, anyone who hits you, you take extra damage because you're so soft. And then 
you basically, but you build yourself up. So you go, I mean, and like I said, you're going to get your ass kicked over and over. <laughs> like you are just going to get, like Raiders are going to come through town and just, you know, knock everyone unconscious and take all your stuff. And it's this really hard start. But then you start building up your toughness and you start building up your weapon skill and you start getting equipment. And, you know, you make a go of it. You get strong and you get your, you know, it, it, it's got a really good system. It's got, like, a lot of weapon systems. It's got a lot of, like, different weapons, swords, ranged weapons. It's got martial arts. And, like, all the attacks, you have, like, body parts, you know, like arms and legs and torso and head. And attacks will hit various things and have... Like, it's really common to get, like, your arm or leg, you know, injured to the point, like, and if your leg is hurt, you'll limp, and if your, like, arm is disabled, it will, like, hang, like, limply at your side. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really hyper-realistic, and it's also one of the other things it does that's really cool. Like I said, it's a base-building game, but it does an incredible thing, which is, um, like, a lot of role-playing games, when you switch areas... Mm -hmm. uh, like, you'll, you'll, you'll go off the map border, right? It'll say, like, loading, please wait, and then you'll, like enter into the next area this game it's you're all on the world map like you never zone like you can and you can split up your guys like you can literally have like one guy running to one place and one guy running to another and you can like go back and forth it's like an rts it's mm -hmm. it's very much like a combination of an rts and a like a role-playing game yeah are you still there yeah okay okay I thought, well, so, I, and I so you um you know, you can have multiple bases, and you can have your guys doing stuff, and you can, you know, I usually lose some guys at my base, and have them, and I'll go out and, like, roam the world and, mm -hmm. you know, kill things. And it's all just the same world. Like, you can switch between your groups and your and your bases and stuff, and, like, and you just basically go, like, rolling around, and you just, like, go to bars and stuff, and you just, like, find people to recruit. And they all basically start off pathetic, but you can later on, you can start building, like, training dummies, and they can sit there and, like, do some train, you know, do some training, um, you know, against inanimate objects like tr practice locks, practice picking locks, and stuff like that. It's a little bit like Warband, you would say. Which one, Warband? Warband, you know, the, the medieval game where you, the one that you got. The me. one that you got me for my Mountain Blade. Mo oh, Mountain, Mountain Blade. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. I so it's funny because after I played um, Kenshi, I went to Mountain Blade Warband. It's very much the same thing. It's basically like your intrepid group of heroes. Then you just kind of open world, go around, look for trouble. You know, beat people up, take their stuff. You know. Yeah, and as far as I know, Warband Two doesn't have a release date yet, right? Yeah, the the new the new one's called Banner Lord, and uh -huh. people have been salivating over that for years okay. and, and allegedly okay. it's coming it should be it should be really good when it comes out and i'll also say warband has a really really solid modding community there's a there's a lot to be done there it's a it's a like i said kenshi and warband are both very similar in that you have kind of heroes that you can um you know build into a band and develop it's uh, they're both really fun if you like to kind of play open world sandbox you know yeah. make, a, make a group of heroes okay the other game I want to briefly touch on is this new game, Outward, because I think this is one that we may enjoy playing together, kind of like Seven Days to Die, which is like a fantasy-based open-world survival game. Now, I know that it's kind of glitchy and people are kind of mad, but right now it's got a mostly positive review on Steam. Two weeks ago it had a mixed review, so maybe they're moving in the right direction. But it's just an open world where you're in fantasy and you just got to find your way and you can quest with friends and, uh, you know a real real RPG experience, I don't know. Which which game was this? It's called Outward. 
I was reading about that one too, and it sounded, you know, I read the reviews of that. It's it's weird that you bring it up because I was I was reading about that one yesterday, and then people were complaining that like you spend a lot of time traveling, mm-hmm. like running back and yeah, forth. Yeah, because you're walking from one place to the other when the game doesn't hold your hand, so you just literally have to walk for hours in real time, you know, whatever. But, but what <laughs> if you like having your hand held? <laughs> well, too bad, man. Go play, I don't know, Hello Kitty Island Adventure. I love Hello Kitty Island Adventure. Butters played it. Well, that's that's from the the South Park episode, Make Love Not Warcraft. Yes. yes it is. I mean, I'm just <laughs> for people that don't know our inside jokes. So, <laughs> but anyway, uh, we're getting kind of towards the end of the of this particular podcast. So I want to touch on a couple more things, which are the Joker and Black Widow trailers. You guys have any any first reactions on those? It looks cool. Okay. I, one, I mean, I haven't seen Black Widow. I really am curious to see what they do with the Joker. It's such a boy. After Heath Ledger played that role, I like nobody I don't touch know it, why right? anybody would even square up to attempt it. I think it's just uh, like actor ego. Every actor now wants to take a shot at it because they want to say, "Oh, I, I bet I can do it better." And, and like, if oh. anybody could, Joaquin Phoenix sure could. Mm-hmm. That man does tortured really <laughs> well. Um, but then again. I am kind of in the throes of superhero burnout right now. Mm-hmm. So, well, he's not a superhero, so you're safe. Well, that's true. <laughs> that is very true. And um, he does but, act like a real clown, which I actually don't like clowns in real life. So this is, in a way, this this Joker kind of distorts me a little bit more than the other ones because he he to me he's kind of like a real clown, right? I don't know. Some, so on the sub on the subject of real clowns, yeah. Um, you know how I've spent all of my life saying that I'm not, you know, Mr. Bakersfield or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Zach Galifianakis show, um, Baskets. Oh, okay. Uh, if you if you haven't seen it, it's uh, kind of a weird, dark comedy about this guy who is in France trying to become a clown, and uh, he loses his scholarship to clown school, so he has to go back home <laughs> to live with his mother. Oh, I heard about that. Yeah. His mother lives in Bakersfield, California. Oh, I'm and sorry. In the establishing <laughs> shot of Bakersfield, California, you can see my house. Really? Honest to God, my house. You're looking right into my backyard. Next to the Yellow Mountain, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is that is on the Yellow Mountain. Itancito's <laughs> <laughs> laughing because he remembers the Yellow Mountains when we went to visit you. So, that was... <laughs> that's like awesome that's I didn't realize that what was the name of the show again Basket what Baskets Baskets okay and what's it on um, I think it's FX FX okay is it, but I mean is it on Netflix now or is it it's on Hulu I know it's on Hulu okay uh, it might be on Netflix we'll definitely check that out the the Black Widow trailer looked awesome to me from the point of view that it looked like real I always like because Black Widow to me is not a superhero. She's maybe a hero or an assassin. But she's, she's a, a spy. Yeah. She, yeah, she's a spy. And that whole ballet kind of school thing where they secretly train women to be assassins, that's freaking awesome. I don't know. I like, I like, I really like you're saying that doesn't touch on the superhero fatigue because to me, it has nothing to do with the Avengers or anybody else. It just has to do about the life of this little girl that was raised in an assassin school, ballet, whatever, you know? And to me, that's interesting as a story. It doesn't really have to touch on anything supernatural or anything like otherworldly. It can just be right. her life and all the trials that she had to deal with to become a double agent or whatever she became. So, I, 
I, I, I'm actually excited about that. I know a lot of people say too little, too late. I'm like, no, bring it, man. Give her her yeah, view, honestly. I don't know. Marvel phase, what is it? Phase three wrapping up right now. I guess they're sort of looking for what comes next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I think this is a fresh turn, in my personal opinion. I don't know if people like it, but to me, this is a fresh turn that humanizes the hero a little bit more. So. Well, anything getting Scarlett Johansson work fine in my book. Yep, you got it. And then the other thing that I've been watching is Love, Death, and Robots. And I gotta say, I haven't watched all of them. Those little short stories are captivating. And, so, the, and the art is awesome. The art style for some of those things, it's insanely good. I so recommend it. I watched all of them. It's mature, though, so just beware if you go watching that stuff. There is like. <laughs> It borders term, on like uh, anime porn or whatever, you know. But anyway. yeah, the term <laughs> gratuitous applies nicely to just about all of them. Um, and with any antho- with any anthology theories, it's got its or a uh, uh, series, it's got its strengths and its weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few of them that uh, what was the one, the witness, where it's the woman sees a man kill oh, somebody in is, an apartment and then runs around, uh-huh. and, then, and it's just a cycle. It's awesome. So well, just spoiled it. okay, and th- that's <laughs> fine. From a story standpoint, it's okay, fine. But again, the, the term gratuitous applies, and I'm not, I'm not a prude. I don't mind nudity or whatever. But if literally the only purpose to the back end of the entire story is just to have her running down the the street without any clothes on, mm-hmm. it's a, it struggles. Yeah. Um, for me, the series really kind of finds its, really kind of finds its center when it's. Um, the the one that I really loved was called uh, Suits. That's what I was going to say. You and I are of the same mind. I, I showed that farmer. one to Ethan. Yeah, that's awesome. If, if I, I want it to, to be a game. Around. I want it to be a game. <laughs> right. If, if I got to drive around in a giant mech killing space bugs, mm-hmm. um, and that's what a farmer was, I yeah. would be a farmer. Exactly. I would be happy. To, I get to take care of cows and, and grow stuff and then blow up bugs. Yep. Um, but it was it's funny because when those when they hit they hit a great deal of emotional depth and they do it within about 15 minutes mm-hmm. um right now we're kind of uh, there's been sort of a, a movement recently short films have really started kind of hitting their stride um it started off in the 90s where you had those little fan made you know little fan made short films like uh troopers uh, mm-hmm. the star wars fan stuff yeah um and as the computer technology the the graphics work everything's kind of been catching up and becoming less and less extensive mm-hmm. you can have these really amazing uh short films um in fact there was one that i was watching the other day um it was uh it's called the lookout mm-hmm. it's uh, do you guys remember the old uh penny arcade comics i mean i know penny arcade i never really read their comics so well, it's based on one of them, and it was a okay. short film. It's made by uh, a couple, uh, David and Chris, uh, Kristen uh, Biscat, mm-hmm. out of uh, San Francisco. They do. It's called Redgate Films. Okay, and they just did this thing. It was basically like you know, it didn't take much. They didn't have a huge crew. They didn't have a huge budget, and they made this thing that was incredibly good. Um, if you go to like uh, YouTube and you're looking at like Dust. Mm-hmm. they're great little films. And while, you know, again, they're not all going to hit for one reason or another. It's, mm-hmm. And I, so I've been really impressed with that kind of, that short run media right, medium right now. Mm-hmm. And 
sex, death, and robots really kind of scratches that itch in a couple of them. It does. Like um, you were saying, suits. I could have a bad day at work and, and watch suits. And uh, yeah. I'll be happy. That that just makes me happy for some reason. It's, it's like a, the whole thing is like a cutscene from a video game. It's right. so cool. And like I said, it packs a lot of emotion in a really short space. Um, there are some of them that were just clearly little experimental things done to show kind of an animation style. There's uh, the one called Zima Blue. Mm-hmm. I, and I don't think I saw that one, did I? Is that where the in space it's, or it's the artist? Oh um, no, I haven't seen that one. Well, the the style on it is a little jarring whenever you start off. Mm -hmm. uh, the people are all—it's sort of this weird, elongated, compressed thing, and it's just about this artist who's creating these massive works of art and kind of discovering where he gets his his inspiration from. And it was again a really, uh, really kind of bizarre and the visuals were really great um but it, you were right it's a very mature thing and you're gonna see it's not just lots of wang dang doodles There's hanging plenty around. of tna yeah and uh it's but it's it's worth a watch it is yeah. really worthwhile because there's a few of them in there where it's not going to be the same for everybody but there's a few of them in there where it's as you're watching it, you're like, this is really pretty special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay, well now we're gonna we're getting to the close of the podcast, but we need to talk about the the last big item, which is the trailer for Star Wars dropped a couple of days ago. So, did you guys watch it, and what did you think? Uh, images were great. It doesn't give me enough to run on as far as the story goes. Mm -hmm. um, so it was one of those ones where I was we're not seeing anything new there's not the new planet where it's like holy crap that's something we've never seen it's before yet another desert planet <laughs> we got a desert planet we've got what's probably going to be indoor we've got yeah because that's where this the, the star crashed right the, yeah the, the death, death star, star the death star um, crashed there and you've got great costuming um you know i'm really excited i've really liked the new cast mm-hmm I'm glad to see that uh, Mark Hamill's returning as a Force Ghost. I mean, you knew okay. he would, but you really want to see it. Okay, so what about um, the title? This thing's called Rise of Skywalker, right? Who is Skywalker? At this point, they've killed Skywalker, so who is Skywalker? I mean, Ben is a solo, right? Are we saying that he's a Skywalker? Are they going to say that Ray's suddenly a Skywalker somehow? It could be in reference to the fact that Skywalker's legend will... That it's... You know, even though the the the, na the bloodline has died out, the name will still persist. Mm -hmm. And you know, technically, and while he may be named a solo, still has Skywalker blood in him. So yeah, but he's not so actually named Skywalker. I don't know. I just think it would be kind of weird for them to end that trilogy without a definite Skywalker. Yeah. It's entirely possible, and I I really hope for the sake of the story that it's not that there isn't one that there isn't an actual oh this is luke's you know ray is luke's daughter i yeah. i don't want to see that yeah my, i mean uh, you could write it in fine but i i it's not really what i want to see or if they do it they'd better do something really special with it yeah ethan sito and i came up with a with a theory that it's a it's a walked out theory that the emperor was the one that got shimmy pregnant because i never stood up for that midichlorian thing killed star wars for me so I wanted to say that there is no midichlorian, so that means that the Emperor got shimmy pregnant, and guess what? They have twins. 
And mm. the other one ends up being Ventress. And when she gets pregnant, she hides it from the Emperor. And guess what? Get, guess who Ventress's great-granddaughter is or whatever. You know, it could be Rey or, you know, whatever. Anyway, Ventress is, is the most interesting character to me from that part of the Star Wars universe storytelling. Yeah. So I I was, know, I, Andres and I were talking the other day, and I, well, my thought about this whole thing was, you know, quite frankly, I think they've, I think the Star Wars universe is one of the, the, the you know, one of the best IPs, if you want to be so, you know, cold. It, it's really a wonderful IP. It's a wonderful universe. I think it's a place that a lot of us would like to spend time, but I just think that the, the original movies, the original trilogy, the original characters, you know, and then, and then them trying to, like, fit in movies between episodes, you know, three and four, four and five, whatever... I, I think the whole thing's played out. I, I think, and, and, and no more fucking reboot. Pardon my language, but yeah, no more reboots. Yeah, yeah, no I more agree. reboots. Stop rebooting it. Stop revising the history. Mm-hmm. Let's make this wonderful universe and let's do something new. Yeah, time for the Clone Wars stuff to stop. Everything in between, stop it. Start anew. Go to the Knights of the Old Republic like they're going to do. I don't know if Ryan Johnson is the correct choice. I know a lot of people are going to be angry if Ryan Johnson gets to do the Knight of the Old Republic trilogy. In, in the end, I don't care. I am with Candyman. I want something new. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, the Mandalorian is going to scratch that itch, I think. I don't know if the other one, because I'm. although I consider Rogue One as to be the fourth greatest Star Wars movie. I, Rogue One was very good. It was the only one that had any spark mm-hmm. of the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. It's the only one that was even in the same galaxy, pardon the pun. Yeah, but they not, now they want to do a spin-off with that Spanish actor from the Rogue One, I'm like, oh, that guy wasn't that compelling to me. He was okay, but I don't want to see a spin-off show about him. I don't know why they chose that. They, they make the weirdest decisions, in my opinion. The Mandalorian is a solid decision. That other one, the Rogue One spin-off, uh, I don't... They already milked Rogue One, and, and, and it paid out for them. They don't need to keep milking that. Like Candyman said, do something new. Take a little risk. You got the money, do it. You know? If it doesn't turn out, you lost some money, you know? So... I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. And the fact is, is that if you're looking at Star Wars as an IP, um, best Star Wars that they've been doing over the last... I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not putting any hate on the, the sequel. I've really enjoyed all... I've, I've found a lot of uh, positives in Solo. I actually enjoyed that movie. Apparently, I'm one of the few. Um, but I, I've enjoyed watching that movie. Mm. And... Uh, but if you watch the the animated series like Clone Wars, it's it, it's it. You want Star Wars to me that Star Wars, yeah. And it's a little episodic and it's a little silly, but that was what they were being. That's what the original Star Wars trilogy was being modeled after. So it feels yeah. like those those early serialized Flash Gordons, and as a result, it's been. I've been enjoying watching it with my son. I mean, so. to be honest, I think Clone Wars is better than the prequels. That's mm-hmm. my personal opinion. Uh, I, I think that's a really that's a, a really solid point of view. And if they had made the Clone Wars, is what I wanted the prequels to be, like a more a slightly more refined version of Clone Wars. Although Clone Wars yeah. has some really good good episodes, but like I said, it, it's I, in my opinion, it's run its course now. You know, we've had clone. You know, we've had different versions of this Clone Wars stuff since what the mid two thousands, the first two thousand decade, whatever. Yes. So it's I, I think yeah, it's time to bad boy for 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 quite yeah. a while. I mean, a different I mean different takes too, you know. Different mediums, I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but I mean, in my opinion, more Star Wars is better than less Star Wars. Although I think, as a as an old school Star Wars fan, I think I have to say, maybe for me, the only canon, the canon for me ends at 1983, let's say, and everything else is just kind of icing, and maybe not take it as seriously, because otherwise yeah. I get too stressed about it. You know, just let's let's just approach it that way, and then we don't. And then when you when you don't have high expectations, you just end up enjoying whatever they produce. Let's just enjoy whatever they make. Okay, yes, that's, and that, that's honestly, that's what they're supposed to be. It's mm -hmm. supposed to be something joyous. It's supposed to be yeah. something fun and silly and out there. And you know, maybe you find some meaning in it because you know there's there's always meaning to be found in these things. But really, if you're just I mean, I get it. As soon as the word Metachlorian came into oh, into canon, oh, it was like, oh, oh, come on. And I was, it took me years to sort of, re you know, to sort of recenter and be like, come on, dude, it's a movie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like... there, there's, there's, there's people in this world that have real problems and, I know. and you don't like a concept in a space movie with lightning swords. <laughs> Uh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just in denial. As far as I'm concerned, yeah. the midichlorians just never happened. What, what, what yeah. midichlorians? What exactly? What yeah. original? Exactly. What first three movies? I, we started with four. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I saw somebody had mentioned. Um, the next thing that Star Wars should do is probably a Qui Gon Jinn, Obi Wan Kenobi, you know, buddy series. I'd love to see those two, you know, going through just the trials banter. and yeah, just discovering, you know, you know, just I, going out and living in the universe together. That'd be pretty awesome. You know what I would like? A Quentin Tarantino version of those two characters just going around shooting the shit in different bars and killing people. <laughs> that would just be awesome. Yeah, I bet you you can't levitate him and make him land on your sword. They, they um, just get drunk and start doing stupid stuff. You know, I don't. In the Star Wars <laughs> anthology comics that they put out, there was actually a short story that had. Uh, Mace Windu and Yoda in a diner that it was basically the opening to Pulp Fiction <laughs> and you know these bounty hunters kick in and start getting ready to you know tear the joint up and as they're sitting there debating the true nature of the force and what it means you know for the, for the, the one to show up and you know bring balance and one of them's like you know, Yoda's like, uh, or Mace Windu is like, it's like this cream and coffee. You put a little bit of cream in the coffee, and now there's balance. And Yoda takes the, the salt and dumps it on the table. It's like, look, here's two, a Sith or a master and an apprentice, and here's all the Jedi. And then he blows everything away, and there's just two left. And he's like, now you've got balance. And so it's that, it's that argument. And then, of course, you know, the uh, lightsaber that said, you know, Bad MF on it, and uh... <laughs> which, by the way, Candyman has that wallet. He, I saw her. I saw he it does. To Belize. That oh, I've awesome. seen it. It is amazing. <laughs> so cool. Oh man. Well, I think we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up. So, thanks to all right, guys, Candyman and Ethan Cito for showing up today. By the way, I'm transitioning in directly into Monster oh, Hunter after this podcast. So, if you guys want to play some Monster Hunter, I'm gonna be online. Oh, okay. For the oh, yeah, I'm down for that. And, uh, I have got to go to the grocery store. <laughs> okay, well, have fun with that. We're going to kill some, some grubble grubbles. And then I just right. wanted to announce that I'm going to have uh, Dwayne Moore from DM Double Games in the next podcast. He's going to be interviewed here in the next couple of weeks. He's a guy that we met at the MagCon in New Caney, Texas. And he we, play, we demoed one of his uh, games which is a Dominion-style one. It's kind of like a card-building game, and it was a lot of fun. And it's going to be in Kickstarter 
in the near future, so I want to bring him in so he can talk about that. So he'll D be Wayne. Yeah, D Wayne. He's gonna be in the next bucket. So with that, I thank you guys and I bid you adieu. Have a good one. Okay. You guys Adios. Hasta la pasta. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> guys, it's a pleasure. Okay. All right. Yeah, All good right. to good to see you guys. I'm gonna well, I'm gonna go to the monster hunter and hunt the monsters. Okay. We'll see you there okay. shortly. All right, Bye. talk to you guys later. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to the Mutant Donkey podcast. If you'd like to contact us, please send us an email at mutantdonkey at gmail.com. That's mutantdonkey with a three instead of an e at gmail.com. We will also put this email address in the show notes. Thank you.